VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, December the 1st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the command with an edition of the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 888 590 VOCM, which is 86. 26, so a variety of Santa Claus Christmas parades in the offing for this coming weekend, including here in the city of St. John's, of course, postponed for one week given the armed standoff on Brazel Street. And is it true that the three people that were brought into custody were arrested that day were released within hours? Is that actually what happened? Someone told me that yesterday. I hadn't seen that in the news, but anywho, the parade Sunday DT downtown beginning at... 12 noon, and as you heard Brian Madore in the VOCM newscast, Dawson Mercer, you mentioned that he had an assist, but think back, Mercer got off to a super cold start, so now he's got nine points on the year with the assist last night, that's nine points in his last ten games, so obviously he's turned the corner, and Nish Young Newhook took a knock, hopefully not injured too, too badly. The Newfoundland Growlers down in Idaho got their second road win of the season, second consecutive road win, 5-4 shootout win against the Steelheads, Zach O'Brien with the winner in the shootout. You know, if you've ever gone down to see the Growlers and see someone like Zach O'Brien, it's really, truly amazing how good you must have to be to get to play in either the American League or the NHL because O'Brien is absolutely a talented hockey player, but winner last night. And on the ladies' side, the Professional Women's Hockey League has released their full schedule. 72 games in their inaugural regular season kicks off on New Year's Day. Last game scheduled for the 5th of May. Going to take a couple of breaks. Well, there's 24 games for each team, 12 at home, 12 on the road. They're going to take a couple of breaks. February, they take a little break for international play, which includes the rivalry series between Canada and the United States. They also take a break in April when the Women's World uh, Championships take place. So the New Year's Day game, the first game of the season, Toronto and New York playing uh, down in New York, uh, New York State, and that hopefully will include Maggie Connors from this province, who played her collegiate hockey at Princeton and was a draft pick of the Toronto women's team. So good luck, and hopefully that is a big success. Well, woke up nice and cozy and toasty in my own home last night, of course, in my bed. And for folks who heat their home with fuel, and we know with all the implications of the carbon tax carve-out and the bickering and the to-and-fro in Parliament about carving out the carbon tax for all home heating sources, that's actually in the Senate right now. We can get to that in a moment. But for folks who qualify, the home heating supplement program has been extended. The deadline is now moved up to January the 15th of next year. So if you're eligible, please do get your application in. Nothing like a few uh, a home heating bucks coming in the door. So, if your adjusted family income for 2022 was $150,000 or less, and you have directly incurred costs with the purchase of furnace or stove oil, you're eligible for the maximum uh, supplement of $500. And of course, if you earn around $100,000 or less, the minimum supplement is $200. Bucks. So, for more information, the email address is a simple one. It's oilsupplement at gov.nl.ca. So, please do apply for that money. If you're eligible, and as mentioned, woke up in my own home, nice and warm. Yeah, you know, whether it be bringing in consultants to help guide government policy, which is overused and I would suggest abused in this country and including in this province, and then it's the new go-to tactic of a task force. So when there was a housing announcement scheduled for yesterday, I was curious as to be as to what might be included in that announcement, and it's basically a task force. So, you know, there's a few questions looming here. 
Number one, is there any sort of timeline associated with this task force and the recommendations and moving on recommendations? And it's fine to bring together municipal governments and provincial government representatives, community groups. It probably should have been done a long time ago because these issues regarding homelessness and people living in tents is simply not new. You know, all of a sudden, because the tents were right there on the parkway, right there for the members of the House of Assembly and other bureaucrats to look out the window and see the tents, now all of a sudden it's task force worthy. Okay, if it's going to be helpful, it's going to bring some positive impact to the issue regarding homelessness, not just here in the city, but right around the province, fair enough. But I think the timing questions being asked by whether it be Jim Din or Tony Wakeham or anyone else are absolutely fair. You know, is this simply because now the snow is starting to fly? You know, there's some 30 people living in this tent city behind Colonial Building. On the pending storm on Wednesday night, apparently most of them went to get some emergency shelter. Good news. Options continue to be offered offered to folks living in those tents. But, you know, where are some of the short-term solutions that you see elsewhere in the country and elsewhere in the world? You know, someone sent me an article from Germany where they have these little homelessness-associated uh, pods. They're little enclosed I don't know really how to describe what it is, but it's a very small pod, and it's a, in and out of the, uh, the conditions and the elements, solar panels on it to generate heat and what have you, but are we even exploring some of those really right there uh, short-term solutions, whether it be modular housing? People are also suggesting, what about hotels? If we're using hotels for newcomers, can we not in the short term, in the interim, use hotels if hotel owners are willing to offer rooms to the provincial government and or the municipal governments? to try to deal with what a task force okay if you want to talk about that you know what to do all right also got an update yesterday on the status of progress with the new mental health and addictions facility now it looks like it's on schedule and it's on budget not going to open until spring of 2025 it's absolutely important to get things right there so it's going to be 102 new care beds in that facility. I don't think that's as many beds that were in the Waterford Hospital, which of course we had to do something about that. The Waterford was built and opened in 1855, so obviously new surroundings were required. They're talking about person-centered care at the new facility versus the old traditional approach, the institutional type of approach that has been taken regarding mental health because they're not insane asylums. They're care facilities, so that will indeed be open. It also includes new 60-bed hostel to replace the old Agnes Cowan hostel, which was really dilapidated, to say the very least. So the status report is open in 2025, hopefully in the spring. And this was live yesterday, but it's worth bringing forward because we need people to know that because of the ruling by the CRTC, the reason why we're dialing 10 digits to phone from home to home is to accommodate the new 988 hotline, suicide prevention hotline. So it doesn't replace 911, of course, if indeed you find yourself in the medical emergency with whether it be suicidal ideation and or have uh, harmed yourself, it's still a 911 call. But 988 is now out there for call or text 24-7, free of charge, English and French. So I'm going to keep putting that out there so that we ensure that people who listen to the program and may indeed find themselves in moments of crisis, that new and I think quite important line is now available for you. Uh, I think we have Nancy Reed from the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities coming on the program this morning. 
And this is really quite something. It'll be in the world of optics, but it's a real conversation that we have to have here. December 3rd is International Day for Persons with Disabilities. And as a rule, Nancy Reed and others would join provincial government representatives, sign proclamations, take those photographs. But now for the first time, they will not be sitting with the government. And this is all about some of the amendments to the legislation of car- called, pardon me, the Building Accessibility Act. I'll let Nancy elaborate on exactly what the implications are here. You know, whether it be about removing the building clause established in 1981 that says any building built before that date did not have to comply with accessibility standards and some very specific examples that Nancy's going to be able to offer to paint a clearer picture than I can and remember so 25% of the population are people with disabilities. So she talks about some of the accessibility issues that were addressed at the House of Assembly, for instance. And her as a woman in a wheelchair, had she been elected, she wouldn't have been able to access the House of Assembly. So, and then they made some improvements, did not include sensory disability-related issues. So we'll let Nancy uh, get on the program here and give us a better idea of exactly what the concerns are and what needs or should be done. Okay. So folks on the Bureau, or pardon me, on the South Coast have been offered the opportunity for public consultations regarding pending projects offshore with nearshore wind. We can absolutely talk about the onshore wind proposals that are in play. There's four that have been put forward by the government. We're currently evaluating World Energy GH2. Everyone knows the issue. And also include pattern energy out at the Port of Argentia, which are going to proceed. But... The offshore wind conversation, look, I know there's been ongoing uh, negotiations to try to create the regulatory regime and the potential royalty regime. There are proponents in the queue right this minute talking about offshore wind projects for this province. The problem with this is that unlike the onshore wind, where we actually have formal proposals with the amount of hectares required, the number of turbines that will be installed, where their water source would be, all those types of matters. But the consultations regarding offshore wind are basically, what do you think? As far as I can tell, you know, it's just what do you think about offshore wind? It's not new. People understand what offshore wind means, but we have no idea what they're talking about regarding scope, scale, floating, more to the seafloor, where the markets would be, access or interaction with our grid. So it's kind of hard to have a rigorous public consultation with nothing really in hand, nothing concrete to even consider what the implications might be. So if you're someone on the South Coast who's been to one of these consultations, it'd be really helpful, I think, if you join us on the program to talk about what you heard, what some of the questions that were posed, and what kind of reaction they got from federal uh, government representatives who are holding these particular consultations. And of course, with the onshore wind, we also know that there was an opportunity lost for the town of Stephenville now that the Diamond Group has taken over and still plenty of questions to be asked about progress, the status, actual money to accomplish what Mr. Diamond has suggested could be done at that airport, still. Skepticism, I I think, is still very much the sentiment uh, across many parts of the province. But regarding that opportunity lost because John Risley and his World Energy Group, they bought an, a substantial piece of property on the airport grounds for a laydown yard so we can tackle that. And we're still trying to get more updates about exactly what's going on out there. But in the world of travel, another couple of quick notes. Deer Lake Airport apparently celebrating their 25th anniversary. They've got a rebound ongoing, like many airports and airport authorities across the country. 
the slowdown in air travel because of the pandemic was obviously very, very, very real. But now also, they are rebounding to the tune of about 90% uh, pre-COVID. So congratulations to Weatherby President CEO Tammy Priddle and her group out there trying to keep Deer Lake Airport as a sustainable operation. So nearly 260,000 travelers filtered in and out of the, uh, the airport out in Deer Lake in 2023. So there you go. Also, sometimes I wonder if there's a concerted effort overnight with people who are like-minded on one issue or another to send individual emails on their topic of choosing. And last night, it was WestJet. So I get it. Some people say, ah, lovely for the elites to be able to travel over to uh, England and have their little vacay. And I do think there's an absolute upside here for visitation to this province because of a direct air access route. But this was all in opposition. I guarantee I got 15 emails that said that this is a complete and utter waste of money. We know that the province has put forward some $3.75 million to support all of the airport authorities in the province. How much money is associated with attracting WestJet to bring this direct route to Europe back? We have no idea. No money has been spent as of yet. It'll all be based on how successful the seat sales are for that particular route. But a lot of people overnight decided that it was a time to send me a WestJet concerned email and so be it if you want to bring it forward on the program this morning let's go also for anyone who's traveled any time in the recent past via air it is pretty frustrating and now there seems to be conversations going uh, amongst the industry leaders about imposing not only a uh, charge for your uh, checked baggage but for your carry-ons why because people are doing what people do how many times have you been on an aircraft and here comes Bucko with the massive carry-on and the massive knapsack and or the lady has a knapsack of carry-on and a big purse and trying to find a spot in an overhead bin. And of course, then you're always told the flight sold out. If you want to check your carry-on, then da 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 So now they're talking about actually charging people a fee for a carry-on. I mean, there's nowhere to hide from these airlines. Unbelievable. Okay. I mentioned this to Jerry Linnacki and Ben Murphy in the, uh, on the morning show that today. Is, you know, how often, how common is it to know that people are seeing news stories, reading the headline, and probably not going any further than the headline? Which, of course, all the real information is under the headline. So headlines can be absolutely misleading. And, of course, you know, the whole concept in the world of media is if it bleeds, it leads. And so I read a headline last night that, of course, jumped right off the page. And then you dig in a little further. And let's see. So the headline read that Canada's homicide rate is the highest it's been in 30 years, which, of course, is startling. Of course it is. The highest rate since 1992. A little deeper in, and you talk about the prevalence of violence in society, which is obviously very real. Across the country in 2022, 874 people were killed, a 9% increase compared to the previous year. Then it says, here's a, a, an important quote coming from Stats Canada. Despite recent increases, homicides remain a rare event in Canada, accounting for less than 0.2% of all police-reported violent crimes in 2022. Manitoba had the highest rate in the country, followed by Saskatchewan and British Columbia. And importantly, even though we've heard from the Crown Prosecutor's Office and the Stats Canada numbers are very clear regarding violent crime in this province, PEI and Newfoundland and Labrador, lowest rates in the country. So, you know, then you talk about the use of guns and gangs and the rest. Uh, there was a jump 
in Canadian youth accused of homicide. 90 youths accused in 2022 compared to 33 in the year before, which is really quite something. Firearm-related homicides accounted for 41% of Canada's homicides in 22, similar to 2021 levels. Gang-related homicides accounted for nearly a quarter of the homicides in 22, a large contributor to the overall homicide increase. So, yeah, it's obviously of concern when it's its highest rate in 30 years, but still in the terms of a safe society, knowing that 0.2% of all police reported violent crimes in 2022, hopefully sometimes we're not just scaring the heck out of each other for the sake of, even though violent crime, obviously concerned. Again, overnight, and there was two different emails, and both emails said they were coming from correctional officers at Her Majesty's Penitentiary. Well, everyone knows about the conditions, and they're horrific. It's a dungeon. It's antiquated. We need to replace it ASAP. But these two COs say that the tinderbox that is the prison population is set to explode. I mean, the lack of visitation and uh, physical activity because of staffing levels and what have you. And then they go on to talk about they even know what some of the folks who are basically at the revolving door. They're in, they're out, they're in, they're out, they're in, they're out. And they are talking about the fact that not only do they think and feel like they've been treated like animals while incarcerated, but then supports upon release. Now, I know that the John Howard Society and Cindy do great work. I know my buddy Danny McGettigan and the folks at Turnings do everything possible to help in those circumstances, but it looks to me like the revolving door needs some stopgap measures included or added to the system. And I know people don't like thinking and talking about that, but say la vie. Okay. So, Netflix, some people's favorite streaming service, they are really balking at the potential for the CRTC to impose additional payments from the company. So, this is all part of the Online Streaming Act, right? It used to be known as Bill C, uh, C-11. So it's making its way through the course of proceedings. But Netflix, and look, when we talk about Canadian content, some people, you know, scoff at it. You know, we're mandated as radio stations to play a certain percentage of our music from Canadian artists. And I do think it's important. The, the arts are part of the community. It's part of the economy and, of course, drives an awful lot of jobs in the country. But it looks like Netflix does indeed spend a fair bit of money here in the country. So they have a team of about 800 people in Canada have spent more than $5 billion on Canadian productions over the past five years. So the threat, I guess, coming from Netflix is if there's an additional uh, payment required from the company, then that will displace some of the current investments that they make with Canadian artists to drive Canadian content. So just all of these things regarding the Googles and the Metas and the streaming uh, outfits like Netflix, lots of consternation up along on that front. And a couple of good ones, or one good one, anyway. Come From Away will grace the stage at the Gander's Arts and Culture Center again uh, next year. It was a roaring success this past year. Every single performance was sold out, so they're coming back to the stage in Gander for the 2024 season, so that's good news. Oh, maybe we should reach out to the folks at Riddle Fence. For folks who don't know, Riddle Fence is a literary magazine. They just uh, put forward their 50th edition, but they're in financial trouble. So if you're a supporter of the arts, in particular Riddle Fence, they may not make it to the 51st edition. So they've uh, created a GoFundMe page online to raise $50,000. They get some funding from provincial and municipal governments, but it doesn't cover operating expenses. It's a terrific magazine. It's launched many a career, and I think it's a pretty important cog in the industry itself. So if you are in support of that magazine and were unaware of their financial 
financial troubles. The GoFundMe has been set up if you'd like to put forward some of your hard-earned dollars to keep that magazine rolling. It's one of the good ones. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us here. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. And oh, there we go. We're talking about the coalitions of persons with disabilities and their concerns with the Building Accessibility Act. Nancy Reed is going to kick off the program. She's the executive director at Cardinal right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin the, the show this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the executive director at the Coalitions of Persons with Disabilities, NL. That's Nancy Reed. Good morning, Nancy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Doing well. Um, we had a great day yesterday. And I want to say, uh, first, uh, happy International Day of Persons with Disabilities to, uh, to our community out there, to the disabled community in our province, representing about 25% of the population of this province. That's a pretty good number. So um, on December 3rd each year, we recognize International Day, and I don't want to lose sight of that this year for sure. Absolutely. But this year will be different. You're not going to have your usual regular public appearance with members of the provincial government to sign proclamations and the, all those types of news photo op opportunities that they present. Why? Uh, it was a decision that um, I made uh, a couple of months ago, I guess. In, normally in the fall, we start thinking about International Day. And this year, um, we were really, we are really bothered by a number of things. I mean, there's always issues and, and areas that we're concerned with and they're lobbying for or, uh, you know, uh, activating for. But... Um, this year, with the amendments to the Provincial uh, Act of the Buildings Accessibility uh, legislation, we were really, um, re I, can, I don't even have the words to really describe what it felt to us. We felt that we were just being so disregarded and um, that the changes, the amendments that were uh, brought forward and I've, I've learned now have received royal assent, um, really set us back. And if I could, I'll just speak to that briefly for a moment. Um, in the Buildings Accessibility Act, there were a number of uh, amendments made this year, one of them being a new definition of persons with disabilities. And that's a key piece for us at the coalition and for a number of our organizations and certainly individual advocates in our province. When we think about disability, it's generally understood, I mean, on the national level, international level, and of course on the provincial level, that persons with disabilities include uh, all types of disabilities, including non-visible disabilities, not only disabilities that are regarding uh, vision, hearing, and physical mobility. The modification or the amendments to this act would change the current definition to remove the word sensory. And sensory is a, is a big word in our community. Sensory includes persons with the neurodivergent community, persons within the autism spectrum, persons with um, uh, intellectual disability very often are impacted by sensory considerations. And so the, the removal of the word sensory in the definition is potentially very impactful for our community. How so? Can you paint me a picture? Because, I mean, I do know a little bit about it. You know, the wife is a teacher and I have children with, on the spectrum in her classrooms over sure. the years talking about sensory-related matters. So just paint us a picture as to what that might mean, not only the removal of the word, but what some of those sure. accessibility issues might be regarding folks who are neurodivergent or have sensory sure. concerns. So the practical issue is this. The Buildings Accessibility Act is designed and its regulations developed to ensure that buildings, public buildings, we're not talking about residents, public buildings are available to persons you know, with disabilities. And so 
when we think about that from a sensory context, we could think about things like the lighting uh, in the environment. And so when we have regulations to support this act, we think about it from a built environment perspective with uh, building access. If, you, if you're thinking about a wheelchair, you're ensuring that there are ramps in place. If you're thinking about it from a sensory perspective, we think about the lighting and the ambience created by that lighting. Those are real triggering areas or uh, areas of concern from the neurodiverse community often. And without that sensory uh, consideration in this in these regulations there's no direction within the regulations to consider things like lighting uh, outside of things like lighting for general wayfinding for persons with low vision but outside of that we're thinking about sensory uh, I, I guess from a sensory perspective there's lighting that would be really important uh, ways that we could help individuals from the neurodiverse community to function and to find uh, safe spaces and and and, and and uh, navigation within buildings. So we remove sensory, we're potentially removing opportunities for persons from certain communities to really be able to exist and operate inside some of these buildings. How, how can that be addressed on a permanent basis? I know some businesses, for instance, will offer shopping opportunities throughout the week that are exactly for that reason. Mm -hmm. They will turn off the music and dim the lights, those types of affairs. In a public building, how could that be accommodated permanently? Or are you simply looking for those uh, set-aside hours for folks with these sensory concerns? No, I mean, certainly uh, those types of moments or hours within the week are certainly, you know, appreciated and applauded by our community. However, we need to create spaces that are more universally available. So if we have uh, considerations for the best we can do, and I don't just mean the best we can do with what we have, but really to set up environments that are universally available for the greatest number of people in our, in our province. Um, if that's the standard that we go, if that we that we look to, then we're always doing it right. We don't have to rely then on all the regulations or the stringent um, regulations that, that that we'd be concerned with. If we default to universal design and universal considerations, then actually we're creating spaces that are already available to the greatest number of people. I recognize that we need to have regulations in place. Builders, uh, you know, contractors need to know the definite, you know, the, the I guess the um, the numbers when we're putting in these spaces. But creating that from a regulations perspective is really important. Fair enough. And, you know, there's a, a lot of things that maybe people don't consider here. And this is a very specific one brought forward by an emailer during our conversation. And this person has muscular dystrophy. So the issue is even just the standardized uh, height of seating. So she, I think it's a lady, needs higher seating so she can stand up independently as opposed to need help all the time. I mean, how do how do we get those messages across that maybe just maybe to offer that particular option for this lady and others in similar situations is part of it? Because... I would imagine, Nancy, for for many, or if not most, it's not oblivious because they're ignorant to the fact or they don't care about it, is they just might not be aware of some of the needs of the community because they just don't think of it. Uh, that's, I, I believe that to be true. Uh, people want to do well. I believe that. I even believe our government wants to do well, but we don't, we don't want to do things that are barriers to people. We're good people very often you just don't know what you don't know and thinking about the you know the, the comment around the chair heights and that type of thing 
we now have accessibility legislation in our province. It's two years old. And so that's different from the Buildings Accessibility Act. But accessibility legislation is, like I said, it's only two years old. Regulations are in the process of being developed. From the community perspective, that's certainly not fast enough. We've recognized that it takes time and it is being developed. So, you know, I will applaud that that process has started. I would like to see it being happen, happening faster. And I would like to have more input on the... Um, uh, I guess on the priority areas of that legislation going forward. But within accessibility legislation, it will mandate or when as that regulations will be developed that all of the pieces of existing legislation will actually be modified or amended to ensure accessibility. So when we think about, um, you know, chairs and heights, and different, you know, desks and those types of things in, in public environments, that comes down to procurement. And so our procurement legislation or, or, you know, any information around procurement would consider then persons from, uh, you know, from, with different needs. And so that conversation is, is, is or the, the questions asked by this particular colleague today are really important to that conversation because, again, it's the, the need for the community of persons with disabilities. The individual who made that comment today is a person of this community. And so their lived experience, their living experience is really important to ensuring government does things well. We need to be continuously consulted with. And, and again, that's one of the issues with the uh, the amendments that we we saw, you know, this fall, Minister uh, Studley, uh, Minister responsible for this act, stood in the House. I saw it on video. I witnessed some of it in person, and thanked the Buildings Accessibility Advisory Board for their, um, you know, for, for their recommendations. But what Minister did not say in that space is that those recommendations were not actually the ones that they used when making these amendments. Uh, sure, they read them. We even know that there was a further consultation. There's a document online called What We Heard. And you can read there that there was a, a, a third consultation held with the general public, with the business community, with anybody who would, would, would participate. I participated, many people from various communities did. And in that space, the public were asked uh, for their, um, I guess, their support or how they felt about the recommendations from the Building Accessibility Advisory Board. And in that, an overwhelmingly uh, high number of persons responded that they were 100% in favor of the recommendations being put forward to government. But again, those recommendations were not the ones that were used uh, to, to form the amendments. And that's really concerning to us as a community. It, it feels like, I say it sometimes, it feels like an illusion of inclusion. You know, there's a process set up to which we're being consulted and, you know, uh, speaking with government and, and providing this information. But at the end of the day, that information is often not, not what's actually used. And with this particular act and what we saw with these amendments, it really feels like there was an intended um, thanking, I guess, of, of this group publicly and all the work that they did. But at the end of the day, what wasn't recognized is that the recommendations from that group, by and large, mostly, were not actually included uh, in the amendments that were put forward and, and eventually passed. What are the potential implications of the building clause established in 1981 being removed uh, as part of this amendment? Uh, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? So the issue regarding the building clause talking about 1981, if a building was yes. built before that, you didn't have to comply with accessibility standards. You make specific reference to a multi-story building if there was a re renovation on one floor or another. So what does it mean in real terms? 
So in real terms right now, the only uh, removal, the only uh, way that a building built before 1981 must become compliant with legislation is if it completes some renovation or change of use. Um, the problem is that those renovations would have to be flagged by uh, the Department of uh, 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 service NL basically and that department is only flagged when that building is in a larger municipality or in an area whereby there's a permitting process that would go to service NL, you know, digital government service NL for that permit. Um, many buildings in our province don't actually exist, public buildings inside of larger municipalities. If a building is in a local service district for instance, it's not going to get flagged in that way. These amendments will also not apply to uh, just maintenance of a building. So if a building is just going to go in maintenance, changes could be made, but if they're not considered renovation changes, again, it's not going to get flagged. It doesn't have to become compliant with the Act. So that means a building built pre-1981 can do all kinds of maintenance, exists for you know an indefinite amount of time without becoming compliant with the Act. I'll tell you that... Um, at the coalition, for instance, we have had over recent, well, I mean, over about a year and a half now, have had multiple conversations, just general, you know, just um, friendly conversations, nothing contractual or anything of the sort, with uh, a, a property owner who um, has a number of larger properties in the downtown core of St. John's, properties that are not compliant with the Act simply because they've never had to be. And uh, once, and, and we've been talking with them about they've wanted to know how they could make changes, you know, getting prepared for accessibility legislation that came in, in, in effect a while ago, and knowing that regulations would come into, you know, to, to change their, um, I guess, the, the importance of their compliance. Once this, um, these amendments came out uh, in October, that company is no longer interested in talking to us. They no longer have to be compliant. That's really shocking for our system. Yeah, I mean, lost that opportunity. Going backwards is always a bad idea. Uh, final thoughts to you, Nancy, before I have to take a break this morning. Um, we're also really concerned about the opportunity to lose um, the, the, I guess, the promised, I'm going to say, disability advocate position in our province. Uh, last two mandate letters to the minister responsible have been about. Um, uh, the creation or have included the, you know, the creation of the Office of a Disability Advocate. Uh, just uh, over, I guess, in, in just a few months ago, there was a, a, and I don't have all the words in front of me, Patty, there was a structural review of the statutory offices of the House of Assembly. And within that, um, there was a recommendation, and again, it's only a recommendation at this point. We don't know if government will consider it, but we're publicly asking that it not be considered. Um, there was a recommendation that the Seniors Advocate be renamed, reconsidered, and realigned to be inclusive of the seniors and complex needs advocate. Um, for us at the community level, to house something as massive and as needed as a disability advocate within the already full and functioning uh, seniors advocacy uh, role is very, very much concerning. It's too little. It uh, does not provide opportunity for us as a community that has faced multiple barriers, systemic discrimination for many years. To be placed under the seniors advocate, that full office, is really concerning to us. And so um, I'm publicly stating, and, and of course a number of our colleagues are asking government not to um, accept that recommendation, not to go forward with that, and we're certainly available for those conversations as well. We appreciate your time this morning, Nancy. Thank you.
Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's Nancy Reeves. She's the Executive Director at the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities, NL. Let's take a break. Uh, we spoke with uh, Mayor Hilda Whalen out of the town of Whitburn some while ago, talking about a petition they put forward uh, regarding the number of practice-ready assessment seats at Munns Med School. So that was part of the discussion that we had with the interim dean, Dr. Dolores McKean, just a couple, was it yesterday, Dave? Or Dave, yesterday? Okay. It was yesterday. So Mayor Whalen would like to respond to what we heard from the dean of Munns Med School. Then Nathan's in the queue to talk about Municipal Council, which one? We'll find out. And Tom's there to talk about an accessibility event coming up as well. Don't go away. Santa Calls returns December 4th to your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Mayor Whitburn. That's Hilda Whalen. Good morning, Mayor Whalen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. How about you? Good day for this time of year. Tis that. I would like to speak, Patty, to uh, yesterday to the Dean regarding... Uh, the PRA, the doctors. First of all, we need to recognize that these are not uh, foreign doctors uh, looking to emigrate here. These are Canadian doctors, Canadian citizens who are trained in various countries, uh, some that have very good credential schools. And I noticed that uh, the government just recognized U.S., Ireland, and some of the U.K. countries as absolutely good to emigrate here. When these PRAs are trained inter- inter- outside the country, they then they come back to Canada. The first exam they do is for the Royal Canadian Associations of Physicians and Surgeons. A short list is called CARMS. It is a very hard exam and failed by many. But for those that do make it through, they then have to write other exams. Here in Canada, they write what they call the MCCQEE, uh, MCCOCE, uh, NASOCE, National Assessment Committee for, for Clinical Examination, the Medical Council of Canada Qualifying Exam Part 1, the MCE Part 2 Medical Evaluation, and there's about eight exams that they have to write. Sure. I, I think we're conflating a couple of different issues here regarding like where a doctor is born. The issue regarding Canadian doctors that I spoke to Dean McKean about is that we're talking about Canadian doctors who were trained abroad, unable to get a residency position here. The PRAs are for doctors, regardless of where they're born, that have already completed the residency and have uh, yes. practiced independently. So just to make sure that people understand, we, we are kind of talking about two different things. Yes, and and the residency issue is an issue because I know last year uh, Mon took zero residencies, uh, uh, probably the same as the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons where they didn't accept a foreign doctor from 2013 until now, like 10 years with no doctors coming in and, and doctors bleeding out. And in regards to residency, absolutely, we should have had uh, 20 or 40 residencies across uh, the province because they are, these are potential doctors that we don't have. Uh, I thought she was pretty clear uh, on the residency issue and the numbers as she described them regarding uh, the number of people in the queue to go through the practice-ready assessment seats, of which there are 20, two cohorts of 10 that that they do twice per year. She described the backlog as a lot less than the numbers I think other people are using. Well, uh, no, she's wrong. How how would she be wrong? She's the dean. 
she's the dean. I have the letters here from the physician and surgeons that were giving to these applicants. And they are they are scheduled for PRNA. Like I said, they've been through the the all of the Canadian testing. When they their their final uh, uh, designation before they go to Mon for PRA is the College of Physicians and Surgeons here in Newfoundland. It is their job to check the schools and their credentials and to make sure that all of these eight various exams that they need and their two years training is done. They are then given a provisional license for six months and told to apply to PRA. And, uh, of course, you know, there is work to be done. But the the investigation and research for these 29 applicants are minimal. They will be checked by uh, the MON if eventually get into the system in the 12 various areas that they do practice in and make sure that they are not deficient in any of these areas. But, like I said, it's minimal in regards to the work to be done. These 29 applicants uh, should not have to go through another because where else and what else can Mon check them for? Uh, these 29, by the time uh, that uh, uh, this one that is starting the 15th of January, by the time that 12 week is finished, they're probably going to have another 30 on top of it. Because she said, well, um, um, she says there's not that many applications. Well, let me tell you, I know personally, and they're on my computer, 230 of them, and I know that the, the recruitment center I've been talking to, they also say they have hundreds. So there are a lot of people applying here for residency or for, for PRA. So you're telling uh, me that the dean of Munns Med School has undershot the number by 10 times? From where I'm standing, it is. But how, would, how you. would you think that your information is more accurate than the actual dean of the school? Because I am the one that the 230 applicants were sent to, Patty. It was sent to me by Barry Pollock, who is the president of of the Association of these Doctors. Is that a I national? Can't... Is that a national number that you're looking at, or is this specifically to this province? These, these are people that applied to this province. That's 2.30. And I, I asked the recruitment team, how many do, do you have? So we've got hundreds of over and above. The, the amount of people that are waiting here for PRA and such, it's huge. Hilda, will you do me a favor and send me the contact information for that person who gave you these numbers? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, do she that. Just send me an email. I'll wrap it up with final thoughts before I have to go. Yeah, well... Uh, I heard her say that they are trying with the best with all the resources that they have, and uh, obviously they don't have the resources to to do this. And there are the many applications, so the onus is on them to work with the government and the medical association to set up PR outside of the university, like they have in Nova Scotia, who just called for 150 IMGs. But she has it set up outside and can can practice it. We are controlled by the university. We need to set it up outside the the provincial government, MON, and 
the medical association could do that very quickly if they wanted to. There are the applications, and my fear is that the applicants going through the College of Physicians and Surgeons will be slowed down so as not to put too much pressure of uh, PRAs waiting in the university queue. And I'm telling you, Patty, this is an issue that needs to be addressed. I appreciate the time. Send along that info for me, if you don't mind. I will do that. Thank Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. uh, Let's take a break. Nathan and Tom, you stay right there. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Nathan. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Okay. How you doing? Uh, Pretty good. First, I like to say I'm only 32 years old, but uh, I've listened to the show for 20 years, and it's my first time in Carlin, but uh, I figured there's no better time than ever than now. Welcome to the show. Thanks for the call. All right, no, I was calling regarding, and there's been some phone calls uh, in about the uh, council and stuff in Long Harbor. Uh, I know that two members have uh, been suspended due to violating the code of conduct within the uh, town's regulations. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just calling because, I mean, uh, uh, the town, they had passed a rule to start with on no video recording of the meeting. Now, that was voted in by council, and I mean, Patty is a public meeting. If uh, if the council wanted something to hide, you pick a better spot than a public meeting to hide it. I would think. <laughs> All right. Yeah. But but anyway, uh, so they're being uh, accused of of not conducting their their affairs properly, and what they're saying is uh, that they should be able to record the meetings. And uh, but these people were, were were taken out for for violating the code, and, and they haven't. They're not professionally conduct themselves at the meeting. Now they're saying that the, the, some people are st- stating that the town is is not spending their money wisely, or they should be spending it uh, more freely. I mean, yes, Long Harbor is uh, the highest uh, capita budget, you know, per capita in, in the country. But I mean, just because you have the highest budget doesn't mean at the end of the year you got to have zero in the bank. You know, it, it's not a, a council is running a town the same as running a business. I mean, it's for it to be more prosperous for years to come and not just, you know, living as for right now. But they're obliged um, to deliver a balanced budget. Yes, that's correct. Unlike provincial and federal governments, obviously. Yes. Yeah. So so anyway, i just like to think that, I mean, people on council, they're volunteers. So when someone goes to a council meeting as a councillor, they don't deserve to be treated uh, misfairly or anything like that. The same as, as on a job. I mean, everyone deserves respect. Right. So what I'm getting at here is is for people to come to a council meeting and and leave upset because of the way some people are conducting themselves. And I mean, at the end of the day, volunteers are the backbone of the community. I mean, me myself, I'm from Long Harbor. I'm no longer a resident of Long Harbor, but my father himself has spent 40 years volunteering his time for the community. 32 years as mayor. In those, uh, I'm only 32, so I, I remember, I mean, volunteering is not just the person that's volunteering, it's their family as well, because I, I remember as a child, times when I would he'd miss, miss hockey games or family events because they're volunteering their time, meetings, those sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. And to to call in and, you know, to down the people that, that volunteer their time to towards the community uh, to be a better place. I mean, I just don't think, you know, that it's, it's right per se. I, I think those people need recognition 
you have a mayor, a deputy mayor, a council there. These people that are on this council will drop drop their heads. They're the first to clear in seniors' uh, driveways when, when it snows. Uh, they're the first people at community events. I remember as a child seeing some of these same people from years ago. Um, when you go to a community event, they're the first one there, volunteering there to help. I mean, that's 25 years ago. I, re- I remember that now. Sure. Let's break this down a little bit. You know, even though we're talking about volunteers for the most part for many, many municipal councils, you know, there was a, an obligation for the councils to bring forward a code of conduct. The problem for many of these codes of conduct is that there's so many gray areas and so many vague references to appropriate behavior, acknowledgement of conflict of interest, those types of things, operating inside uh, proper protocols for managing meetings, public policy, spending initiatives, all the rest of it. But it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's different in different communities. It's being interpreted different in different communities. So while we have volunteers, and in some municipal elections, one of the big campaigns put forward by MNL a couple of years ago was trying to attract uh, council candidates. Because how many councils that we saw, everyone was acclaimed? Or how many councils did we see, there wasn't even enough candidates to fill all the seats in the chambers? So if we're going to see a stressful, divisive policy put forward because it's hard to interpret and understand, we're just probably creating a whip for our own tail. Not to say we shouldn't have codes of conduct, because I think we should, but they've got to be very detailed and easy to understand. You can't have someone being accused of breaching the code of conduct and many people sitting around the table don't even know what we're talking about. And next thing you know, big investigative process, someone either resigns or is kicked off a council for something that could be really innocuous and not breaching of any real meaningful code. Absolutely. But like you say, but at the end of the day, when, when a council, uh, you know, follows the Municipality Act and it has, they, they can indeed, correct me if I'm wrong, they can uh, make up rules and they can be voted on within that municipality. It may not affect another municipality, correct? Right. Right. So when when those rules are made, I mean, it's the same as as you go you go you go to Walmart, you go out in, in public, you go rules. The rules there for reasons. The reasons are uh, so they can be controlled and for for people for people to come. You know, you, you just need rules are there to be followed. Is basically what I'm trying to say. I mean, you can't just freely go to a meeting and, and do as you please. It's there to be. The rules are there for a reason. And, and, you know, this this is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, there's appropriate ways to behave, whether it be, you know, interactions with fellow counselors, uh, interactions with the general public, but then importantly, you know, to acknowledge and understand conflicts of interest and to state them clearly and all those types of things. I mean, it's important because we have to have integrity and faith municipal councils like we should be able to have with uh, legislatures and parliament, but it's just a lot of real vague stuff in there. Someone sent me a long copy. I'm not going to say who it was and from what community because they weren't supposed to do it, but just to give you an example of just how odd some of these things are written like I read it and I thought I can't really even think of a circumstance where uh, uh, someone would breach this code because it doesn't really make any sense the way it's written so anyway it's an interesting topic and we need people to want to be members of councils paid or otherwise so I get the summary point Uh, anything else Nathan before they flag me off to the news yeah no just like to point out uh, as for Lionheart itself uh the water system is outstanding. I'm not even from the community. That's where I fill up my water drugs for my family. Uh, they're walking trails they have there to get all new paved roads. The town is is really in, in really good shape. And, you know, just to see negative comments come about it, I mean, I, I just really, really think it's wrong. And, and, you know, for the volunteers you got there for council, 
you know, good work to him as, as long as any, any volunteers in any community. I mean, personally, it's not for me. I wouldn't do it. But for, uh, you know, for people to volunteer their time to make their town a better place, that's what should be recognized, not, uh, not the small stuff that uh, people like to nitpick at, right? Understood. And point taken. And, you know, regarding public meetings, there should be public transcripts and or videotaped and put on town's websites or what have you, because people like to know what's happen- happening where they live. As much as we focus in on the provincial government and the federal government, a lot of the stuff that I deal with day by day, it's a municipal authority. So we really should be, you know, have a real solid relationship with our municipal councils. Uh, I appreciate your time and the sentiment this morning as a first time caller. Nathan, stay in touch. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Uh, Now, that said, some of what has transpired in legislatures and in the House of Commons over the years, I think some of the shenanigans are driven by the fact that they're on TV, you know, looking for the soundbite and that little clip they can put on their social media page, because you know it as well as I do. Unless you say something outrageous or outlandish and, you know, you get your fellow colleagues banging on their desk and what have you, you might not get any attention in the national news where you get the focus, maybe your opportunity to be re-elected, which is their second most important focus area after being elected for the first time. All right, let's take a break. Uh, Tom, you stay right there. He wants to talk about an event coming up at the Hub. Don't go away. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to Tom Badcock from the Hub. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about yourself? I'm not so bad. Uh, Patty, uh, as you probably heard from the COD lady, uh, executive director there earlier this morning, uh, Sunday is the International Day of Persons with Disabilities, and uh, as usual, we have a event at the Hub uh, again this year, Sunday, uh, 3 o'clock, uh, 2 o'clock, I'm sorry. Uh, everyone is welcome. Uh, there will be some food available for people, uh, and we'll have some music so people can have a dance or a scuff or a roll or a wheel or whatever their, their physical limitations allow them to do, and uh, we'd like for anybody who would like to come to come and join us, uh, despite the fact that uh, uh, the provincial government, as the executive director of COD has so aptly pointed out, has decided to provide its own definition of what a person with a disability is, which is quite in violation of what the international community has said. Uh, as you're probably aware, people with sensory disabilities are considered uh, by internationally, by everybody, as being persons with disabilities. And the fact that they arbitrarily decide that they're not uh, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone because, you know, uh, I find it amazing these days that the provincial government has, has dictated to the municipalities that they have to come up with accessibility plans. And I know that because the town of Petty Harbor Maddox Cove asked me to sit on their, their accessibility committee so they could come up with plans to make their communities more accessible. And yet it seems that the provincial government uh, ignores its own direction to the municipalities. Uh, <laughs> I, I sit here this morning at the hub totally amazed at those things. I can understand the frustration of the executive director of COD when these things are happening. It, it's frustrating as hell. 
you know, when it comes to a definition of what constitutes a disability, you would think that the government would want to have that as broad as possible to catch as many as possible because we're we're talking about people's ability to be able to access things that the rest of us without a disability can. I don't know what the hesitation would be, whether it be removing sensory-related matters, folks who are neurodivergent. I don't understand what the rationale is to have it more narrow versus more broad. And that's because they're acting in a vacuum. There is a definition of persons with disabilities, an international definition of what persons with disabilities are. And it includes sensory definitions. My goodness gracious, my wife has 20% of her hearing. She's recognized by CCRA as a person with a disability and gets a disability tax credit. <laughs> and yet the provincial government says, oh, no, 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 no. If you have, you have these sensory disabilities... It's not a disability. What the heck is it? Anything that prevents you from participating or it affects you adversely in some way or another, that's a disability. And why they would completely ignore the international definition that's accepted by everybody in the damn world, I, I don't know. You know, it, it's the same thing as what I think the, as the lady was, Cod was saying, you know, if, if I change a plug in my house, one plug in my house, in comes uh, the city and says, I have to upgrade my whole electrical system. You know, so why doesn't that apply to all these government departments? Why, when they're making a budget, for goodness sake, they don't say, okay, we have 216 buildings that are not fully accessible. Let's make five of them this budget year accessible. That's what budgets are all about. And yet they make everybody else the municipalities and all those places have accessible buildings and things and come up with plans, and yet they don't do it themselves. It's, you know, <laughs> like frustrated, frustrated, frustrated. Understood. Uh, so give us the details one more time on the event coming up at the Hub. It's Sunday, 2 o'clock here at the Hub. We welcome everybody, not only people with disabilities, but everybody. Uh, there'll be some free food, there'll be some music, and uh, we'll celebrate the, the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. Appreciate the time, Tom. Good luck with the event. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one. Sean, you're on the air. Oh, thanks very much, Patty. Uh, great day out there today. It is. Lovely. Uh, just want to make a few comments about these, you know, what's been going on in the last couple of, well, actually more than probably months with regards to the 10 cities and stuff, but particularly the one down in Bannerman Park. And obviously we've we've heard again now after, I guess, I guess the public and, and many others have asked the city, asked the province, what are you going to do? You know, then they, then they do the usual, well, let's strike up a task force, right? So there we go, we dealt with it, and we can drag it out. We can drag it out for another length of time. Um, I'd like to comment as well, Danny uh, Breen, the mayor, also getting on the, getting on, the, I think it was TV, and I know it was TV, and crying over this, right? I gotta say, that's almost repulsive and offensive to the people that are there. If him and John Abbott wanna cry, Go and spend two nights in Tent City and see what the people like there have to endure. And John Abbott and him going back and forth as to who is going to fix this simple little problem to give people some decency and give them a place to uh, use the washroom. It's just ridiculous. Um, and for Danny Breen to get on as well and saying, 
the union is going to have nothing to do with it. Really now, are they? Where are these union people? If they don't want to do their job, fire them and hire somebody that's willing to do the work that's required in the parks. Yeah, I think that's probably easier said than done. So if the concept is is that the union, based on their collective bargaining agreement, says that their workers have the right to refuse what they deem to be unsafe work, uh, there's ways we can equip people to deal with, whether it be damage or needles or the like. So I think that's a bit of a stretch. Like they do this. Exactly. And all year long, Who's cleaning the toilets? Is this just because these people now have been identified and stigmatized and traumatized that these are the people that are the only people in the parks that are doing this? What about all year long? And But, Patty, if they want to become, you know, the, the city workers don't want to do this and do their job, well, just hire somebody to do it. Get an outside agency and do it. Or something even simpler, which I did yesterday, phone the porta potty people in town and it cost $150 a week for them to put a porta potty there. Just like they do at all the major events that are in the parks, the ice alley place down there, and a whole lot of other construction sites throughout the city. And if you need to get it refilled again, it's an or cleaned out once a week, so it's another 150 bucks. What would it take the city to get off their collective laurels and John Abbott and say, put 10 of them down there while we figure out with this committee task force what we're going to do? And also, where do they think the people are going now when they don't have a toilet? They're probably going in the woods or somebody, or in the woods or in somebody's backyard. You know? It's just, it's just ridiculous. To me, this is just a glowing. Uh, reconfirmation of the lack of understanding, care, uh, action, and plans that our leaders have in the understanding of mental health in this province. It's despicable. So in the world of short-term solutions, because all the building funds that have been announced federally and provincially all helpful in the long term, but not going to satisfy anything for this winter. So, I mean, people who have been thinking about this and proposing different uh, types of solutions, like they send me links all the time. I mean, the time between ordering and constructing a modular home can be pretty quick. You know, if there's a will, there's a way. If we can do away with some of the issues regarding permitting and placement and zoning, we can put some modular homes in place very, very quickly. Then there's people sending along links from Germany where they've got this uh, focus on these self-contained pods for folks who are homeless at the time while we try to look for more permanent solutions. Someone sent along a link, something called a sleep trailer. It's very much like a Japanese business hotel, but it's a trailer. So they're talking about the uses for emergency disaster relief, women's shelters, homeless shelters. It doesn't look like a long-term great idea, but I guarantee you it's certainly better than sleeping in a tent. So there's things there. Absolutely. There is, and it's front and center, and it's front and center, like you say, throughout the world. Uh, you know, there's pods in Japan and railway stations and other places that you just slide into overnight. It's like a catacomb matrix. And throughout Canada, they have, uh, in, I, I can't confirm that every province does, but I know BC does for sure. They have all kinds of laws about lane houses or uh, what's the lane houses and, and small tiny houses. I got a three-quarter acre property in town. Uh, I can't put anything on it. I got a house here, but I still have a 100 by 300 lot that I've asked City Hall if I could do that. And of course you get, well, that's under, it's in the wrong zoning. It's under review. We're gonna talk about it. And if anything changes, we'll, we'll get back to you on it, right? It's just the usual, take forever in Newfoundland, Patty, to get you know anything done here. 
And I mean, it's some just, of the just ridiculous. some of the short-term solutions might not be 100% ideal, but almost Absolutely. anything is better than what we're talking about, the current state of affairs down at that one particular tent and cabin. And it's not the only one. I mean, there was tents up in Pippi Park last year. We didn't even think about it, never talked about it. But when they popped up across from Confederation Building, it just brought a different tone to it. Like even in BC, as you mentioned, the last time I was there, there was big news stories going on at that time dealing with their homelessness issue. They were repurposing shipping containers. Again, not ideal, but better than being out in the wind and the rain and the snow and the sleet and the hail. So, yeah. And then, then you hear the politicians get in just to add to your point. Well, this is not a permanent solution. Like, who cares if it's a permanent solution? If you're out in that park tonight freezing your ass off, you don't care about a permanent solution. You want to get in out of the weather and cold and have a place to use the washroom tonight. That's all your concern is. And for the city and the province, John Abbott, John Abbott, to be getting on with this BS endlessly and not being able to at least just phone up, I think it's called Porta Potty or Crosby's, and tell them, listen, while we sit around with our finger up our laurels, get 10 of those contain, get 10 of those Porta Potties down there, and we want them cleaned out twice a week. That's all that has to be done. 150 bucks times 10 is $1,500, according to my math. And if you have to do that again every week, so what? It's $3,000. And I don't know if we're going to have to go start a GoFundMe page or something to get this done, but it's just absolutely, it's just repulsive, Patty. And to, again, to see Danny Breen on crying, it just makes me sick. You and Abbott get down there and get in the tent for a couple of nights and, and connect with the people and find out what's really going on and do something about it. Appreciate the time, Sean. Thanks for the call. Okay. Take, Take care. care. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, again, the, some of the solutions that people are proposing, fair enough, because every idea has to be considered at this point, right? And unfortunately, we're not talking about something that's new and just happened a few weeks ago. I mean, the issue of homelessness in this country has been front and center for decades. So whether it be these sleep trailers, and again, no one's saying that that's the absolute best we can do for anybody, or the modular homes, or the double wides, or repurposing government buildings, or the potential for a hotel room in the short term while we get some units uh, constructed. So there's a lot to this, and I don't know, I don't pretend to know what the solution is, but it's probably better than the task force, unless they all, they're going to consider all of these potential short terms and start to, you know, to order the modular homes, to investigate what a sleep trailer looks like, and how quick you can get one here, or whatever the case may be. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk travel agency nurses with the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's a vet coffee. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to Landon Reforce. Game orders to the president of the RNUNL. That's the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's a vet coffee. Good morning, Yvette. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Let's talk about travel agency nurses again, because we've discussed the issue regarding their rate of pay and the flexibility of schedule, but now it's the whole issue of them being offered overtime versus your members, whether they be on the casual list or the permanent list. What's happening? Well, um, that's what's happening uh, in some situations. Um, totally unacceptable. We have a collective agreement, and when we say a collective agreement, we mean there's uh, parties who sign that collective agreement. One being the employer uh, uh, with government, and the other is registered nurses union. And there is no excuse, rhyme, or reason for them not to be abiding by our collective agreement. We have clauses in there around overtime uh, about bargaining unit work, and they need to be following our collective agreement. What does it say specifically? Is it as simple as overtime must be offered to our members uh, before anyone else, or what does it actually say? 
Well, it actually says bargaining uh, unit work is to be done by our bargaining unit members in you know yeah. roundabout way, fundamentally, uh, and that overtime is to be shared. And the other part of this, Patty, is it's not fiscally prudent. Why would you pay someone who's already getting $100 an hour at double time when you can go with the cheaper option, which is more fiscally responsible, which would be our casual members, part-time members, and then our permanent full-time people. Yeah, just for context, the numbers we're talking about, the uh, travel agency nurses over the course of 12 months cost $18.4 million versus the uh, nurses that are currently employed, $4.1 million. So there's a major fiscal question to be asked. Uh, uh, I think I really believe the Auditor General should be... Uh, looking into all this. This is our taxpayer money that's being spent on these private agencies and it is eroding our healthcare system. And, you know, we're still losing registered nurses and nurse practitioners out of the public healthcare system because they see better money, better working conditions, more flexibility. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really understand how that would be the go-to measure when we talk about the monies we already spend in healthcare, upwards of $4 billion for a population around 535,000 people. It just doesn't add up. Yvette, might some of this be happening? Because, well, we've talked about these uh, numbers of uh, vacancies inside registered nursing, that the work-life balance and the commitment for these extended shifts and overtime and lack of flexibility, and maybe, just maybe, so many of the casual nurses in particular were declining some of these overtime shifts and so the the supervisors or the management inside nl health services said well if they're going to keep turning it down we're going to offer it to the travel agency nurses do you think that's part of it uh listen at the end of the day i'm not there uh at that point in time but from what we're hearing uh we have grievances filed outstanding that our members were not offered the shift and so those 18 grievances are all about uh overtime offerings uh yep and what does it look like inside a group or policy grievance? Is that simply about not adhering to the collective bargaining clauses that you mentioned? Yes, it is. Yeah, that's about um, it's about violating our collective agreement. Do we have any idea just how many travel agency nurses there are today and what those numbers have grown looks like over, say, the last 12 months? Well, we do know uh, that the money being spent has doubled, uh, or not quadrupled, uh, over the past uh, two years since they introduced the agency nurses in central health. Um, I do know from uh, our board members on RNU that are actually frontline nurses and nurse practitioners, that they're seeing them in the workplaces now where they would never have dreamed that they wouldn't uh, see agency nurses, uh, such as inpatient units at the Health Sciences Centre. Um, the money that's being spent on agency nurses, it just amazes me because, you know, the government has been working on retention and recruitment. They have offered incentive bonuses for long-term care for, you know, uh, licensed practical nurses, PCAs, registered nurses, nurse practitioners. They have offered incentive bonus for nurse practitioners to work in family care teams. And while we have registered uh, nurse practitioners out there working in primary care, because their team is not called a family care team, they're not being offered that incentive bonus. But they're doing the same. They're looking after the patients as primary care providers, the same as those that are working in the family care team. It just boggles my mind how you wouldn't invest in the people that are already working in the system and instead opt to go with this private contract for virtual care from nurse practitioners and physicians. How quickly can these grievances be heard? 
Uh, not very quickly. Uh, the grievance arbitration process uh, usually takes some time, but we have been successful in resolving some of these already. These are just some that are outstanding as of today. I want to get you to react to a quote coming from the uh, NL Health Services Director of Recruitment, Education and Culture. That's Colette Smith. She says, when a decision is being made operationally on the unit level, it is likely that if an agency nurse is available to provide immediate care, then they may be approached to work at that moment. It's not meant to be a practice that we support on a routine basis, but no doubt I'm sure that has happened. What I'd like to say to the union and to the nurses out there is that uh, that the care you provide is valued and it certainly is meant to and intended that we would support you first and foremost. Well, actions speak louder than words. And if you want to show respect to a registered nurse, you give them the option for that overtime, the ones that are in our bargaining unit, not a private agency. I appreciate the time this morning. You bet. Anything else you'd like to say? Um, well, um, I guess you saw the news yesterday about the private uh, company that was hired to come in and provide um, the influenza vaccination in the Confederation building. Yep. Another thing that boggles my mind, uh, that's our bargaining unit work. We have um, public health nurses, uh, registered nurses, LPNs, licensed practical nurses here in the St. John's metro area that could have been asked to go in and do a clinic there. They're uh, doing clinics all over the city uh, as we speak. Um, And the other option was that the people in the Confederation building, like every other citizen of Newfoundland and Labrador, could have um, booked themselves into one of the clinics under the the publicly funded healthcare system. Yeah, can you get those at a, a pharmacy as well? I think you can, right? Yeah, you can walk into a pharmacy as well, um, which are, you know, we do have a big population that needs to be vaccinated. Um, But for a government who says that they oppose privatization of health care and are fully supportive of the public funded health care system, it certainly sends a mixed message. Then you add in Phone Med 811 and Teladoc and the Compass Group and all the rest of it. The corporate involvement in the public health care system has grown exponentially over the last 20 plus years. And it all really started to change when the free trade agreement was, was signed with the United States and Mexico. It just changed some of the regulations and the opportunity for corporate, uh, not only corporate Canada, but international, multinational companies. They got involved here and they're here to stay by the look of it. Uh, good to have you on the show, Yvette. Appreciate the time. All right. Thank you, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, that's Yvette Coffey. She's the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the snowstorm. That wasn't. Don't go away. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The soundtrack of your holiday joy. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Todd. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks. How about you? Not bad, but um, I wanted to call in and uh, just have a couple of comments on, uh, as you said, the snowstorm that wasn't. Um, you know, I think that this has been something that, uh, that's that been talked about over the last number of years of uh, how uh, quick, you know, some of our institutions and, and, and we are to kind of shut down in the face of, uh, you know, impending weather. Um, and you know, I guess it's it, it's it's quite frustrating, obviously, when uh, you know when the weather doesn't actually happen. And, and as you you said this morning, you know, on the, at the risk of sounding like uh, you know when I was a kid, I used to walk up the hill both ways to school. But I don't know what's changed in the last number of years in terms of 
the tolerance level for this kind of weather, uh, you know, and forget about that the forecast is not always right. I mean, p- predicting the weather in Newfoundland and Labrador is, is not easy at the best of times, let alone in, in, in middle, late fall and early winter, especially when, you know, one of their biggest tools, the Holyrood radar is at a, at a commission. They don't even have all the tools at their disposal. Uh, I guess the thing that shocked me uh, about the whole thing, and, and it did shock me in some sense, was uh, I pulled up the weather app on my phone, and, uh, the, you know, the, the weather warning from Environment Canada uh, called what we were supposed to get a severe weather alert that had a significant threat to life and property. And I'm sitting here going, is 10 to 20 centimeters of snow in the winter in Canada with 30 kilometers wind? Like, is that really how far the bar has dropped for, you know, a dangerous weather situation? Because I'd argue that uh, that rain and wind that we had two nights before that, that was far more dangerous and far more stay home out of it than, you know, 10 to 20 centimetres of snow with 30, 30 clicks of wind in the winter. It's just, um, and, you know, like, like uh, we learned through, through the COVID experience, you know, lockdowns and, and people, you know, staying home and, and snow days and people getting days off, it doesn't affect everybody the same way, right? I mean, we're a month out from the holidays. you got uh, retailers and bars and restaurants all over the city, um, that, you know, are relying on every customer and every hour of business that you can get between now and 24th of December. And, you know, basically it doesn't matter if the weather comes, the conversation around it just makes people batten down the hatches and stay home. I mean, I was downtown uh, that afternoon and I mean, it was a ghost town down there, you know, even more than, than it is, <laughs> you know, so it's, I think it's, I think that, you know, the powers that be all the way up at the top start with Environment Canada I think really we need to assess, reassess how we categorize this weather because, you know, if it is indeed severe weather, I mean, you know, I don't know exactly what the weather warning was for, you know, the hurricane that devastated the southwest coast of Newfoundland and Labrador, but I'd imagine it was severe weather warning, significant life uh, threat to life and property. And 10 to 20 centimeters of snow in St. John's in the winter is not a severe weather event. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like I don't think I don't think anybody would consider it to be such. No, you know? I mean I've heard people try to rationalize it by saying, you know, it's so early in the season, people unable to get their snow tires on, what have you. But it's not just because it's November. This happens right in the throes of the, the winter season as well sometimes. So, like for instance, uh, St. Bonds was closed all day. <laughs> All day. Yeah. I mean, it's truly remarkable. I've heard from restaurateurs uh, that said that they lost virtually every single reservation they had that night. I heard from an owner of a very popular downtown bar here in the city of St. John's that said they did $380 of revenue over the course of a night, which I would imagine is a drop in the bucket when compared to regular nights. So, look, I get, you know, meteorology is an imperfect science. Totally understand. I'm not going after Ashley and Eddie or anybody else. But it's how the general public businesses and the the school board and everyone react to pending storms like it's not that long ago i don't think and i'm not going to say back in my day we walked uphill both ways to school in the blinding snow no but 15 centimeters in the winter in the in st john's or anywhere in the province is pretty manageable stuff if people are willing to you know drive to the weather circumstances understand you're going to need to take your time give yourself more uh, uh, following distance but the cars in front of you all that kind of stuff yes there's going to be needs to release the children early from school or have half days or no no school at all but boy really felt like you know Wednesday was a pretty massive overreaction or whatever day it was well yeah and again you know like I said I I, I don't 
I, I'm with you. Like it, it's not about that it never happened, right? It's not about that it didn't happen. It's not for me. It's not anyways. You know, it was unfortunate. And yeah, I mean, it, it looks a bit silly when the whole, you know, I mean, they shut down Confedera- Confederation building. I mean, the seat of government in Newfoundland got shut down at noon and nothing for nothing. You know, like it's it's like, you know, are we so, is there so little happening here that at the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, we can just send everybody home? You know, like <laughs> it begs the question: What goes on? You know. So anyway, it's I, I don't know. I guess it's just it's just like again the risk of sounding like you know old man back in my day. You know, I think that you know the the tolerance level for for these weather events, and I mean, like I said, ten to fifteen, twenty centimeters of snow is not a weather event. It's not that long ago that that wouldn't even hardly rate a second uh, comment other than why we're getting ten centimeters of snow today. I mean, now it's I mean, that's all they talk about on the radio and on the TV in the mornings is like, oh, get ready, but I mean, it's just got people whipped into a frenzy, and like I said, the, the, it affects a part of the economy. Um, that can't afford it. And, and you know, if pe- if people don't feel safe and, and and it's too dangerous to be out, then don't go. But but you know, this whole kind of preemptive warning, get prepared for snow in the winter in Canada, is like guys, like come on, like it's really. I think it's just gone too far, and I think that a lot of people feel like it. I mean, everyone I run through on the street, same thing, thing I'm saying now. I'm surprised there's not a bit more, uh, you know, reaction on your line, to be honest with you, because this has been going on for a number of years now. I mean, last winter was brutal for the amount of, of snow days that were happening in the city. I mean, it devastated the, the bars and restaurants in the city last last winter. Worst winter in 10 years, at least in St. John's, uh, for that. So, you know, and everyone I talk to in that business says the same thing. And it wasn't that much snow often. So, you know, it, 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 what's going on in the psyche of Environment Canada that puts out, you know, because people read that, Patty, and, pe- and many people, they take that to heart, as they should. If the, You know, if Environment Canada warns you you've got a significant risk to your life and property, I mean, I guess if you're a sensible human being, you should pay attention to that. Well, and that's, I think that's what hamstrings decision makers. If you read that and ignore it and something happens and you didn't shut the place down or you didn't have an early release from school or you didn't close the university at noon, then what? So it maybe does start at the top with just how we, what constitutes that type of requirement warning because if I'm a decision maker and I've read that that's in my email as I get up at 6 a.m. to try to make a decision I kind of feel like I have no choice so you know I guess there's a compliment between how the forecast is put forward and what sort of tone and tenor comes with it or how the warnings sound or how the warnings read because if I'm running the school board and I read that risk to life and living property I have no choice I have absolutely no choice because the liability associated with doing nothing is certainly worse than the possibility of getting derided like uh, some people are doing based on the the decisions to close or early releases on this non-storm day. Uh, I appreciate the time, Todd. And, you know, when I spoke to this uh, the morning after, I was very quickly treated to some emails that said, I can't believe you're willing to put people at risk and willing to put people out in unsafe conditions. That's not what anybody's saying. If it's going to be legitimately unsafe, then we do what we have to do to protect the general public. But on days where it's going to be a manageable winter day in the country of Canada in our northern climate, maybe, just maybe, we can do a little bit different and approach it differently than we seem to have been in the last number of years. Uh, final thoughts, Todd, before I go. Yeah, just to say, you know, I guess that's the question that a lot of people have is like, what, you know, what liability, you know, like, is there liability? Like, whatever. Like, if someone decides that it's too w- miserable to go to work, then they got the option to say, I'm not going to work today. 
you know, and, and no, no employer can demand someone to do something that they consider to be dangerous. I mean, but this blanket that we do where the government closes everything down and the schools close everything down, you know, what about people making their own decisions? Like, no, I'm not sending my kid to school today because it's going to be too snowy. You know, because because the, the consequences of the government shutting down is that people hunk batten down the hatches and everything stops. You know, so, you know, and, and again, not again, I will sound like old man back in my day. I mean, 15 years ago when I was working downtown in restaurants downtown, if we had the snow on Friday evening, the, the opposite would happen. The phone would ring off the hook. People would be like, hey, boys, make sure you're staying open like we're jumping into four wheel drive. We're on the way down. You know, so the psyche has changed, obviously, but, you know, um, where I don't think the impact is fully appreciated by the powers that be or what just, you know, shutting the city down, the impact that it has on a portion of the economy that can't afford it. And, and, and for what? You know, like, if, like I said, no one is suggesting to put people at risk. But, you know, if I was working at the Confederation building and it was too stormy to go to work, I'd call the boss and say, but I'm not coming in. It's too, too stormy. <laughs> you know, like we we got the ability to do that, but just shutting everything down. Uh, and again, not even just an hour or four hours or five hours before snow is even predicted to fly. <laughs> like, I mean, we hardly had a drop of snow and the whole city was shut down. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit, it's just getting a bit silly, I think. And, you know, like I said, no one suggests that people should be put in danger. I mean, God knows uh, that's not where I'm coming from, but, but, you know, the, the, Autonomy of people being usurped by the big institutions in our society and in our in our in our city, uh, basically saying everyone go home, stay home, get your storm chips and pack it away for the night. Um, you know that's that that's not a recipe for uh, for much success in a winter city in, in Canada. So you know I, I think this is something that people need to continue to talk about. And like I said, I don't I don't appreciate Environment Canada putting out that uh, I got a significant life to limb and property when I got ten centimeters of snow predicted in St. John's in November. I appreciate the time, Todd. Thanks for this. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, I was blistered when I said similar the other day. Look, and again, no one's saying let's put people in harm's way. That's just not it. Like if you have a business, for instance, when my boys are at work and there's a snowstorm coming, I want their employer to allow them to leave before it gets too dicey and dodgy. But that's when the snow is actually beginning to fly, as opposed to if we were going to see some significant snowfall and heavy at times at 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, then shutting things down at 12 is maybe, just maybe, a little bit too... Maybe erring on the side of caution, that is not actually the reality. Uh, let's go to line number three. Good morning, Anne-Marie Fleming. You're on the air. Hi, Anne-Marie. I'm just calling now to talk about an event that we're having at St. Teresa's Church on Sunday afternoon. Uh, this is a benefit concert for St. Uh, Vincent de Paul's Christmas Hamper Fund. And it's a concert that we've been doing now for about 12, 12, 13 years and um, have had great success with it. And for three years, we did it, actually did it outside as a drive-by food, and we sang with masks on and everything during the pandemic because we had no choice. So this year, for the first time, we're back in the church for a full-blown concert, and we have uh, our director is Barbara O'Keefe, our piano player is uh, Mary Jane Maloney, and uh, we have some guests coming, uh, close quarters, and we have uh, Marion Council doing uh, a presentation from her Red Island Settlement Group. We have lots of things happening. The good thing about our concert, Patty, is that there there is no uh, ticket price. There is no admission fee. 
there are many, many, many concerts going on in the city, and are very, we're very, very supportive of our artists' group. But there are also a group among our people who cannot afford to go to other concerts. So what we do with ours, we have a free will offering of either cash or uh, gift cards or food. So people can bring either or, and any donations over $20 are tax deductible. We're a registered charity, as are St. Vincent de Paul. And if people cannot make the concert, they can certainly make a tax donation uh, through our uh, e-transfers by visiting our website. Uh, they can do it to hhmacbank at gmail.com. And we are the Holy Heart of Mary Alumni Choir, so we've been doing this for quite some time. Um, and we're, we're really excited and we're, we're very uh, cognizant of the generosity of people who can make a generous donation. They always do. We've had great success with this over the years, and it's been a, a major fundraiser for the St. Vincent de Paul. Um, this year... Uh, we actually have Santa coming as well, and people can get their take their bring their cameras and get their own picture done with Santa afterwards. So um, I think I've covered everything, Patty. Unless you have a question or anything. No, just letting you get the details out there. So hopefully that will wet the whistle of folks who'd like to attend the concert coming up Sunday afternoon. It's in Traces on Monday Pond Road. Right, and it's at three o'clock. Uh, and it's when Santa has finished the parade, he'll be coming over to our concert. So we hope you join us with it. And there will be a 50-50 draw. And in the past, that has um, somebody has walked away from our concert with twelve, fifteen hundred dollars in their pocket. So there's lots of opportunity there to um, uh, make a second donation that way. But uh, we really hope that people will come on board, come to the concert. We have lots of beautiful Christmas music for all ages. You'll get to sing with us, and we will sing for you. And um, it will be a lovely, lovely concert, and we invite everyone to come. It sounds like a lovely time. Thanks for letting us know, Anne-Marie. And thank you to VOCM for their constant support, by the way. we've Many people have told us how often they've heard it on VOCM, as well as other medias as well, but especially VOCM. Happy to do it. Stay in okay. touch. Good luck. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, John's in the queue. He's a former school bus driver, also, also wants to talk about the storm, and then another conversation coming about the practice-ready assessment seats at Munns Medical School. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. John, you're on the air. Good morning, Penny. How are you? Okay, thank you. How about you? Not too bad. I'm calling about the storm that wasn't. Okay. I'm thinking they made the right call when it came to the kids going to school. I mean, I drove a bus for about 25 years. I gave it up about five years ago because it's just, uh, I mean, people have no respect. Most, A lot of people don't have any respect for school bus buses on a sunny day. And I'll tell you, it, it, it's nothing, nothing worse than being in a school bus on a slippery, stormy road. I mean, and, and you've got a load of kids on that bus, and, you know, you can't see where you're going. Some of the smaller kids are crying because they're scared. And, you know, um, I've often, I mean, I drove into Goulds, probably one of the worst places on Ruby Line. I mean, you got four or five kids getting off, and you're counting them, saying, one, two, three, four, five. All of a sudden, okay, where's, where'd the fifth one go? You know what I mean? And you're not allowed to get out of the bus with a load of kids. You got to, you know, when they're driving. This is where monitors should be. But what I uh, had to do, shut the bus off, take the keys, and get outside and make sure there was neither a kid that fell down in front of that school bus. 
I'm going to tell you, I mean, like I said, sure, people are mad because the schools were closed, but I'm going to tell you, it'd be a different story if that storm had to come up on us real fast and someone's kid had to get hurt or even worse. It'd be a different story today, you know. Yeah, but even the, most, mean, even the most dire forecast, though, quite clearly had the rain starting at a certain time, followed by snow, yeah. heavy at times. So I don't dispute what the K-12 system did in the, in the city here. You yeah, know, it released an right. hour early. So even if the storm had to happen, the children would have yeah. been at home before it happened. But when the um, dire, you know, Environment Canada says risk to life and limb, how do you think people are going to react? You know, like, yeah, for instance, right. uh, closed all day. Yeah, I mean, and that's what drives people making these decisions as well, right? So yeah. if I'm yeah. running a business or I'm yeah. running a school or a school district and I'm, I read yeah. this, it comes across my desk and I don't close it, then I'm going to be you know what if yep. anything bad happens so I think just even yep. the way that you know the whole concept if it bleeds it leads and the more sensational it is the more clicks you get yep. we've got to be careful with language words matter that's right. Oh, they certainly do. And I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I mean, the school part. I, yes, I can understand. I mean, the small kids. But I mean, like, basically, what they've done, they pretty much shut the whole city down, and there's no need. I mean, everybody that's going to work are, are grown adults, and, and I mean, I mean, I'm sure if you're working in a business and it gets really stormy out. I, I mean, they say, well, I think I'm going to go home now, but I live in a bad area of town, and I need to get home. I don't think there'd be a problem, you know what I mean? But to just shut it down and say, listen, like, you know, everybody stay home and, you know, wait for the storm. And I mean, I think they went too far with us, you know. But when it comes to kids, I think they've done, my opinion, and I could be wrong, I think they've done the, the right call when it came to schools, you know. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I didn't uh, have any problem whatsoever with the schools. But, like, for instance, the children at the, my wife's school, a K to six school, they went home yeah. at one thirty. Memorial University yeah. closed at 12. I mean, yeah. you know, there's just, and I, I guess it's that disconnect where you wonder if we're doing it too early or too cautious or we're too risky. I don't know if there's a sweet spot that we're all going to hit every single winter forecast. But like, if yeah. the month students were let go at 12 and the staff were let go at 12, and yet children in kindergarten were in school till one thirty, there's a there's a disparity there's, there. There's something wrong with the system then. I mean, like said, no, I usually find, I mean, when I drove a bus for roughly about 25 years, the first couple of snowstorms of the year are probably the worst ones because people are, just getting back into but when it's you know yourself when, when the snow's in January well it basically stays probably till March so you're used to it every day but those first couple of ones like everybody's in a panic going in going no in a hurry and I mean you know it's just it's a different once it starts like you said it's just different to me altogether you know yeah, uh, I, I suppose you're right, because the same thing what happens when the snow flies each year is that we have a, some people have a difficult time trying to shift their brain from summer driving mode to winter driving mode. And there's more collisions and accidents and incidents early in the winter season than there is, say, come uh, February, where we're all ready to go and we're all figured it yeah, out. I mean, uh, and people say, well, when I went to school, like, like people saying, well, I, you know, I walked up, I've done this, I've done that. Yes, but I mean, what, I mean, when I went to school, there wasn't a, a, a lot of cars. And like today, every, everybody probably in the, in the house got two and three cars. We had one, you know what I mean? And, uh, but, but people just don't slow down. They don't care no more. I mean, you know yourself, on, on a sunny day, if you're going through a green light, you better look both ways before you go to a green light. You know, I mean, that's, that's the way people drive these days. It's completely so different now than it was. It's unreal.
you know. And, you know, I would add to that is that I can only speak for the city specifically. The traffic congestion here today <laughs> is extremely different than it was 20 years ago. I mean, it is not mm-hmm. even the same kettle of fish at all. The roads are no. jam-packed. People are aggressive and reckless and driving too fast and they're tailgating too often. I mean, it's just a madhouse in St. John's. We're all racing to get to the next red light. Yeah. They only care about one thing, that's their self, and nobody else, most of them. You know, no, there's a lot of respectable drivers out there, but I'm not telling you this. I mean, at the business that I'm in, I see it every day. I'm on the road. I, I mean, I, I'm on the road eight, ten hours every day, and it's, <laughs> it's shocking the way people drive, you know. Well, that, that, that's my opinion on the school part of it. I'm a school bus, and I mean, and if anybody don't agree with me, try driving uh, and ask one of the bus companies, can you take, take, will they take you out for a run in the school bus on a stormy day and see for yourself, you know, how this, how this works out for them, you know. Fair enough. Appreciate the time, John. Thanks for the call. Take care. Have a good day. Bye bye. All right. Before we get to the break, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Caitlin Clark. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm grand this morning. How about you? I'm good. Um, I'm calling in this morning from the Home Hardware parking lot in Carbonier. Okay. I work with the Society of St. Vincent de Paul Food Bank. Um, and we're having our fourth annual Turkey and Fixins food drive today. How's it going so far? Uh, it's good. We've seen we've seen some people. We're hoping to see a lot more. We're here until 5 p.m. today, so we're hoping there will be lots of people stopping by. You know, we have a great community around us, and um, they've really rallied around us this season, so we're hoping to see um, some more people today. Are there anything in particular, some specifics that you'd really like to see donated today? Um, everything is appreciated right now. Um, it's, we were really low there um, a week or so ago, so uh, we just really need everything that we can to fill our shelves right now. Um, a lot of things that we haven't seen lately are things like tinned vegetables, um, canned milk, sugar, tea bags. Um, anything that makes a Christmas meal is always greatly appreciated. We're in the swing now trying to get our Christmas hampers prepared so anything like that is great especially like christmas treats and things you know it's always nice to be able to get people um that uh hopefully the people will do will indeed take the opportunity to stop by so you're in the parking lot of the carbonier home hardware is that what you said yes we're here at carbonier home hardware we've been here since eight o'clock this morning and we'll be here until 5 p.m um we've got a small u-haul trailer here that we're hoping to fill so we'd love to see some people stop by and help us fill that let's do exactly that today folks keep up the good work caitlin thank you thank you have a good day you too bye-bye bye all right there you go let's take a break for the newscast when we come back we're going to talk about practice ready assessments and then an opportunity to have a laugh we all need one of those don't go away your voice in newfoundland and labrador's biggest conversation if you want to know what's happening in your province tune in to open line every day have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m on open line with patty daly on your vocm welcome back to the show let's go line number five andrew you're on the air good morning patty how are you doing not too bad thank you how about you not too bad i'm just uh, uh calling basically to echo some of the words um Hilda spoke on this morning and uh, I must say uh, Hilda has spent hours and hours and hours digging into this issue and uh, she she's the one who, who brought my attention to it and I started researching it myself and I've learned a lot uh, since doing so. Um, one 
concern I do have uh, is a statement the dean made there yesterday in her in her uh, interview with you, where she said uh, the media is uh, you know exaggerating the numbers. Well, she's right in one sense, but wrong in, in another. Um, yes. There's only 29 uh, people currently waiting for PRA. But my question to her would be, how many of that 29 will still be there in a year or a year and a half when they finally get their PRA placement seat? Because they're not going to wait. Uh, if I've got my license from um, physicians and surgeons, I'm waiting for PRA. And New Bron- or uh, say BC or another province can get me in uh, sooner, I only have to wait a month instead of waiting a year and a half. I'm going to go to to another province. I'm not going to wait for for uh, uh, you know Memorial University to to get a seat for me. Um, and I looked into this because uh, I, I remember Hilda told me there was a, a physician from um, another country that uh, was licensed. Uh, uh, provisionally by physicians and surgeons and wanted to come to this province but ended up going to BC because uh, this person got a seat there. I looked at up, I looked up uh, how many seats BC has. They only had the same as us, uh, 20 or so seats a year. And a news release that was put out less than a month ago, now they have that uh, increased to 98 seats a year. So no wonder that that physician went there because the receipt's available. So this is, is, is it's a very big issue because it's not a matter of how many are waiting. It's how many are going to stick around <laughs> through through this process. So if you have 29 there now, uh, nine are go- going in, I understand, in the new year. That's th- there's still 20 waiting. So it's going to be six months till the next one you get another 10 in. Then six months again you get another 10 in. So it's still an issue, and I'd like to know what things do they need, what what resources do they need to increase the number of seats. I'd like to see that double, get 40 a year, and if they need um, staff to do it, we'll get the resources for, for the staff. Uh, if you need space to do it, we'll get space. Whatever the issue is, it needs to be addressed by government and by uh, Memorial University to get these additional seats. Because, Patty, I look, I asked uh, the recruitment team, I said, how many doctors do you need? How many uh, doctors do you need to get us back to everything up to, to 100% operation in this province medically? <clears throat> they couldn't answer me. Didn't have an answer. Didn't know. Um, I dug into it a little. I sat down. I went through uh, all the, the placements that they have uh, posted on NL Health. There's over 200 doctors needed in Newfoundland and Labrador. 200. 80, 80, 85 or 86 of them is just Eastern region. So if we just say we had to rely on PRA alone. I know we don't. And I mean, there's a hundred different factors. I mean, there's doctors leaving the province all the time. There's doctors retiring, et cetera, et cetera. 
But just say we had to rely on PRA alone. Sure, we'd be 10 years trying to get enough doctors to get everything going the way it should. Yeah, lucky we don't have to rely on it uh, as a sole tool to provide doctors. Curiously, there's more doctors working in the province than ever before in our history. The problem is we don't know what they're doing. If they're working full-time, have a full patient roster, if they're doing pure research, if they're simply teaching, we don't know. And, you know, the number of PRAs, I asked all these questions of the dean herself, and your follow-up question, of course, is an impossible one to answer, is how many are going to uh, stay if they're here and they've applied. I don't know. Maybe a high percentage? I have no earthly idea, but I don't know if anyone can answer that question. Well, I mean, I know you're... Just say the OCM offered you a position and said, no, Patty, we got to, you, we got to wait. It's going to be probably a year until we can get you in. And another media outlet calls you two months later. You're obviously going to go with them if it's a good opportunity because you're not going to wait. Who's going to wait around a year with no position? That, that's crazy. But if you only got to wait around two months, well, you might do it. So, I mean, unless a doctor really wants to come to Newfoundland and Labrador, which I'm, there, there may be cases of that, I don't know. Um, who's going to stick around when there's opportunities in other provinces? So we, we need to be much more competitive than what we are. And um, we need to do what BC done, increase it. Increase it, to, like I say, they went from, from uh, 30 seats to 96. So they're on the ball. And that's why they got doctors. Well, they've changed the way they've done a lot of things and the approach they've taken to family medicine in particular in B.C. Because I, I try to follow along with what they're doing in other jurisdictions, compare and contrast to what we're doing here. So I was happy enough to have the dean on. There's certainly a huge difference between the numbers being used by different people on this front for the numbers waiting, the numbers that have been through the churn, uh, whether or not we can... Uh, I asked her a specific question, not necessarily about increasing the, uh, the two cohorts of 10, consequently 20 seats, but even adding one more to the rotation because in 12 weeks of clinical field assessment given 52 weeks of the year you could do four theoretically so I, ju- I simply asked about adding one more to the rotation which would clear up the backlog a little quicker and of course you heard her answer it's regarding resources and for what it takes to actually have these PRAs uh, executed uh, anything else quickly before we say goodbye Andrew um you know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, there's, and I'm not uh, trying to criticize or come down on the university, uh, even though some of the things they've done in recent, <laughs> in the recent few months made me question, such as the old Newfoundland, such an issue made of that for nothing, really. Um, you know, it, it, let's have a conversation. Let's see what you need, because I'll advocate for them. If they need uh, um, funds, if they need space, whatever they need, to look at increasing the number of seats because this is a big issue um I'll, I'll work with them i'll help whatever way i can and i'm sure i'm sh- certainly sure hilda will i appreciate the time this morning andrew thanks for the call yes no problem patty take care you too bye-bye all right uh let's keep rolling here so back starting in July, Brian Aylward, Mike Lynch, and Colin Hollett hit the road, did some 50 shows across the country with the Best Kind Comedy Tour, but the laughs are going to keep rolling between now and Christmas. Joining us on line number two is Colin Hollett, and good morning. Colin, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? Best Kind this morning. How about you? Oh, boy, I'm all right. I'm all right up and on the go, boy. But I don't know what we're talking about here today. I don't know if I just get in here now and try to talk about the shows or I actually talk about the stuff everyone else is talking about, but I... Uh, I mean, I think we can talk all day about everything. I, I will say what uh, the boys are calling in about the snow. 
and saying how everyone's freaking out and you know over 10 or 15 centimeters and i couldn't agree with that more i actually posted a video of uh up on facebook there yesterday the day before you can check it out when you're done your show but back in 2018 i uh i had a show in cape breton and uh before going to headlong to the comedy club in halifax all weekend and when I, I almost never got there because <laughs> they got they get the same thing. It was about 10, 15 centimeters of snow. And just like every year, the first snowfall of every year, it seems like people absolutely lose their minds, man. Like they, they don't know. It's like we don't live in snow for six months of the year, man. Like we drive in snow for six months of the year. Like, it's half our lives, and then when the first snowfall comes, nobody knows what the hell to be at. It, it's pure chaos, man. Cars off the road everywhere. Nobody's ever got the snow tires on. Like, they can't believe the snow came again. And it's like, I never got there because the whole pro- – I almost never got there because the whole province lost power and couldn't get gas anywhere, and there was cars off the road everywhere, and it was about 10 centimeters of snow. And like, like we don't get snow every year, man. Like it's, it, 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 I've never, I don't remember it being like that back in the day. Like I don't remember that. I don't think it was quite the way it is now. But I think some of it is just the early season knee jerk reaction versus you know will that be the same type of decision uh, brought forward in February when we've got that bit of winter driving under our belt for yet another season? I think that plays a role. But I do think that the key point here is when Environment Canada tells people that there's risk to life and limb and property, then what do you think people are going to do? They're going to shut the place down. Now it wasn't shut down. I think we exaggerate shut what shut down means, but if I say, for instance, had a dinner reservation downtown uh, on that day, and I was told that I'm putting my life at risk going on, I'm canceling my reservation. You know, if I'm running the school district, I'm shutting the schools early. If I'm running any sort of business, I'm letting my employees go home early so that I don't make a decision that puts them in harm's way. But it's just the whole conversation gets maybe possibly a little bit carried away. And I think that's a lot of early season talk. So what I would suggest, Colin, is I would not make that rant part of my routine. Oh. <laughs> well, I did it. That wouldn't be my act. <laughs> but you don't take that out. But uh, no, I'll say something else too. I just, I, I, I got because I, I mean I don't call it here enough, so I'll say this. I know right now the healthcare situation is, you know, it's 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 in bad shape, right? But. There are things, too, that make it sound way worse. You know, I'm okay, talking about reporting on stuff, like, you know, like uh, like this saying it's going to be, uh, uh, you know, what, was it risk of life and all this stuff? Like, and it's like, okay, no, not risk of life. Like, it's, it's, it's wrong. But, like, the big thing that's going around now is that they're saying, there's a poll that's saying that there's 125,000 people in this province that don't have a family doctor, Right? Have you heard this? Oh, yes. I've heard a lot about it. <laughs> right? Well, like, but this is insane. Cause do you know where that's coming from? What does that mean? Okay. So, it's it, it, okay. The, the, uh, the Newfoundland and Labrador Medical Association is reporting this number. Yeah. Right? But it's, it's, right? But it's based on a survey that they did in May on 400 people. Yeah. Right? And 25% of the survey said, yeah, they didn't have it. So then they said, yeah, 125,000 people. That's like going down to Tent City and asking who got access to 24 hours access to to a bathroom. And 
they, they all say no, and then more comes between 100% new blend is only 24 exits to the bathroom. Yeah, I, I mean, it's an imperfect science. So the NLMA has one set of numbers. The province disputes it. They say it's more like 50,000. But I would suggest we know how many people live here, and we know how many people are on patient rosters. We know how the doctors bill MCP. There's got to be a better way to come up with a firm number. So if it's 125 yeah. or 140 or 50 or 25,000, whatever it is, we've got such a huge gap between what the association says and what the problem says. I have no earthly idea how many people don't have a family doctor. No idea at all. But I know there's plenty out there who don't because I hear from them all the time. Uh, before I run out of time, Colin, will get to the break. Uh, very quick uh, recap on the Best Con Comedy Tour and the 50 shows across the country, and then tell us what you and Brian got coming up between now and Christmas. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh, the tour was wicked. We did Jack Byrne Arena in Torbay, um, and that was 1,500 seats. And uh, we packed the place, and it was just absolutely awesome. Had Danny O'Brien come in from Ireland. He was on your show. Yep. Uh, that, that, was a, that was a great uh, interview you had with him, and uh, it was a great success. We went right across Canada, and uh, we, we upped our show in Halifax. Uh, we took a, took a gamble on ourselves and went to a bigger venue at the Lighthouse uh, Arts Center. I don't know if you got a chance to see that out in Halifax. It's on Argyle Street, beautiful new theater. And um, we sold we sold that out, and we sold out Edmonton again, and and Calgary, and um, yeah, did 50 shows for five years, and it was awesome. And for anybody listening uh, that attended any of those shows uh, across Canada, uh, just want to say thank you very much for making our fifth year a very special year. It was awesome, so much fun, and uh, we had such a great time. Me and me and Brian are going back on the road now, just doing three shows in December, uh, December 14, 15, 16th. On the 14th, we're hitting up Grand Falls at the Classic Theater. And then on the 15th and 16th, we're doing Gander and Clarenville because we didn't get to do Gander and Clarenville um, uh, in the summer uh, for scheduling reasons. So uh, we're like, we want to get there in December and hit them up there. And we had a lot of people asking, how come you're not coming to Gander? Because Come From Away was there. That's why we, we couldn't get in to the, the Agriculture Center. So uh, myself and Brian are going back there on the, on the 15th of December. And yeah, uh, ticket links are on. Uh, you can catch them on me and Brian's uh, Facebook and Instagram, and it's on showpass.com. And looking forward to get back on the road with that man. It's going to be deadly. Knock him dead. Break a leg, Colin. Good luck to you and you and Brian, of course. And Lynch is cracked as well. That stand up that he does, getting to know me. Yeah, Sookie Baby. Absolute madness. <laughs> awesome, man. Thanks so much for your time, buddy. Good to have you on, Colin. Good luck. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking a little housing. Patrick's in the queue to talk about windmills proposed for the port of port Peninsula, and lots of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John Center. He's leader of the party. That's Jim Din. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me. No problem. I just want to take a little bit of time at the end of this week just to uh, look at some observations of what transpired, and maybe there's some good news here, uh, well, uh, in terms of the candidate we have running for us, but I, I, I want to start with the food bank report. And, um, you know, the fact that we've got the highest proportion of people, uh, seniors and people between 44 and 64 relying on food banks, I think... When you look at, uh, and I've been, I was, in, I've been involved with a, an organization, the uh, Saint, the Society of Saint Vincent de Paul, for over, well over 30 years, and basically we operated as a food bank, and we could see it clearly. And when we would deliver hampers, uh, we, we knew, we, we, we could see the, the economic tough times coming, uh, and we could see that uh, the number of people who were using them were growing, depending on the economic circumstances of the time, but. I will say this, you know, even though 
I volunteered at an organization. The charity model shouldn't be, it cannot be, the the response to this. this is one of the reasons we've uh, we demanded uh, 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 um, the uh, committee to at least look at and to implement. And the key word is implement a guaranteed basic income of some sort. Because what we're finding, I, what I've found, even in the last uh, this last year, a lot of seniors are now uh, using food banks. It doesn't surprise me because they're also facing uh, increases in rent that are dry, that are causing them to uh, fear homelessness. Uh, but I often thought, you know, that people who get to their so-called golden years are now finding themselves struggling, uh, and it is heartbreaking. The other one, I guess, is the homelessness issue. You've heard me speak about this. They're tied. They're linked together. Uh, we had, I, I guess, when I look at it, seven government ministers announcing a task force. Um, the irony of this is we, we called for a, an all-party committee back in October, and uh, the problem wasn't uh, obviously uh, top of mind at, the, at that time, and now all of a sudden it is. I just can't think I, – I think every now and again that we're, we're, we wasted precious time. But apart from that, Patty, and I've said this before, um, you know, I, the answers are already out there as to what we need to do. We've got people who are uh, – I was down there this morning. There are people who are sleeping in the warming tent. Um, because, well, it's too cold to sleep in the other tent, but they're there for a reason. Uh, there are solutions that other jurisdictions are doing. I don't know if we need a task force as such to uh, uh, to look at the to examine the problem as much as let's get on with implementing some uh, some action here, and uh, at least in the interim. And. You and I have spoken about this before. I'm not looking at uh, things such as, let's say, outdoor shelters or uh, uh, rent banks or anything else becoming permanent. I think the long-term solution is more non-market uh, community-based housing. But right now, there are ways we, we can make sure that the people who uh, are living in, 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 in not only in the tent city here but throughout the province uh, have that uh, have their have their immediate needs addressed. How about this? Yep. You know, so they don't. Many people don't want to. Uh, the option of a mercy shelter, whether it be with, you know, the potential to get back on drugs or sexual yep. violence or other acts of violence. We're talking about creating minimum standards right now. How about someone takes the opportunity this afternoon to write down what minimum standards should be, because I'm sure I could do it or you could do it, and then we enforce them tomorrow. So we don't need a committee to look at what the problem is. So if we need staff to monitor and enforce rules for against violence, against sexual abuse, against being solicited for sex, against drug use, let's just do it and make that shelter immediately a better and safer place today. I don't know why things take so long sometimes. No one can tell me that some of the bright minds at Confederation Building can't take pen to paper this afternoon and say, here's the problem that's been identified, here's what we're going to do. Here's the problem identified, here's what we're going to do. Here's how many staff I need, let's hire them, and off we go. I look, you know what? I, I, I've agree, I will agree with that 100%. And I, each, I've met with each time a new minister has come in, uh, when, from the minute, I, uh, the, minute I, the first time I was elected, and part of it is that when I was with St. Vincent de Paul, I went into some despicable, I can only count, housing, uh, housing situations, and I would ask each of the ministers, do you inspect these places before 
you put people in there. And I've been in houses, and by the way, rental units this in the last year, and I've asked the same question. Like, this doesn't require a task force. This requires enforcement minimum standards that there, uh, when it comes to safety um, and clean, uh, 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 clean uh, living accommodations and supports. You're right. This does, to me, I can sit down, you and I can probably sit down and figure, okay, what would I accept if I were to walk into a house? What would I accept as a, as a base? a bare minimum. That doesn't require a task force. That's half the reason the people are down there. you just got to talk to the people there and who are in some of the uh, the uh, the houses of the slumlords that are around, and, you can, and you'll pretty quickly come up with an answer. But I would never got a straight answer to that question. Do you inspect them? I've brought this to the attention uh, with another uh, uh, with a constituent in my district. I I've, I've written the uh, uh, I wrote the government. I I sent uh, pictures in. I didn't hear anything back. So I don't know. I know that the per that the landlord is getting twenty uh, twenty five hundred between twenty five hundred and three thousand dollars a month to house this individual, and. I would say that the window on the place has been boarded up for the last three, four months. It's unacceptable, right? I, mean, you, I don't think you would accept that. I wouldn't accept it. So you're, you're right. We don't need a, a task force uh, to look at this. Just get on with it. Uh, and and I and I won't go through all the uh, the the ideas I brought up here before that I and they're not my ideas, but they're out there. You, you let's just get on with moving it. I don't need three months now to uh, have a task force to uh, come up uh, take three months or two months or a month to come up with solutions. They're there. They're there, and I'll keep saying this, if there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. You know, what exactly are they looking at? What's the uh, time frame for getting recommendations back in hand? Are we investigating how quick we could order 10 modular homes? Are we investigating how expensive and how quickly we get one of these sleep trailers or one of these pods they're using in Germany yeah. or whatever? I mean, let's just know exactly what we're talking about, and can this be a quick turnaround? I would suggest yes, because the problems are not misunderstood. Well, that's, that's not right to say. The problems are not hidden away. The the problems are right there in front of us. Surely, you know, it's a good idea to bring uh, uh, people together as a collaborative to work on these things. Maybe that should include uh, a lot of voices from the community groups. We'll just put forward th what they think needs to be done and government do it. I mean, there's a political victory to be had here. The political yep. pressure is real, but it can't just be about optics and collaborations for the sake of, let's get at it. Uh, very quickly, I'll give you the final word because I'm late for the uh, for the. No, news. I would just say the only other uh, thing I look at it it, it certainly the news with the uh, uh, with the nursing uh, and, and where the money we're spending on travel nurses, <laughs> and, and we've just had a, a contract signed with nurses. It doesn't send a very good message to the, our, our nurses in the public health care system, especially when we're trying to retain them. And I'll leave with this last word. I really do hope that uh, we we have a new candidate down in Conception Bay East, Bell Island, with Kim uh, Churchill. And I'm uh, hoping that if we uh, we bring her in, and uh, we'll have another strong voice for people in this province. Anyway, I'll leave it at that, Patty. Interesting runoff between oh. Miss Churchill and Tina Neri and what it looks likely that uh, Fred Hutton will be representing the Liberals on that ballot. Curious to see how that by-election turns out. It given will be. all the political issues <laughs> we're talking about. Good to have you on, Jim. Have a nice weekend. Take care. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Jim Dinn, NDP member, St. John Centre, leader of the party. Break for the news. When we come back, Rob wants to talk about the snow storm. We're going to talk housing, windmills, and a couple of ideas for something that you might do for a bit of Christmas cheer this weekend. Don't Go away.
Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Patrick, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning, Patty. It's, uh, it's Patrick calling. I'm calling from McKellaweed, Nunavut. Uh, I wanted to weigh in this morning. I, I, I've, uh, I'm an expat, uh, of course, and uh, I wanted to weigh in on the, uh, the proposed windmill project. Uh, it, it's in the uh, uh, environmental study stages, uh, my understanding is. And uh, as an expat, you know I, know, I know there are an awful lot of people that are very, very excited about this project. And, I mean, I understand that. I mean, uh, somebody who was... Uh, uh, I've been a community, I'm not in the field anymore, but I was a community economic development practitioner for over 25 years. And uh, there are a lot of people that are very, very interested in this project, you know. And, and uh, But, you know, there's a flip side of that, you know. And I, I, I don't claim to, be, uh, to know everything about this proposed hydrogen generation project. But I do know that the good people of the Port of Port Peninsula, 84% are against it. And uh, where, do you, where do you get that number, Patrick? Have. Because I don't know if anybody well, really knows exactly who's in favor or opposed uh, uh, of the project because there's some really loud well, voices out there who are vehemently opposed and fair ball. It's where they live. Their opinion is uh, well, welcome here I, on this I program. Understand. That's right. And, and, and uh, my understanding was a straw poll done and, and there's, a, there's a significant number of people on the board. There are people who are for it, but there are a lot of people who are against it. And and what they're saying, I think, and this is the thing that I'd like to reiterate today. They're not saying, let's not have this project. All they're saying is metaphorically, not in our backyard. Put it somewhere else, you know? And, 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 and you know, I, I really believe that uh, uh, maybe maybe the province needs to do a retake, and, and not necessarily uh, a retake of the project, but a retake of where it's located. If people don't want it in their, metaphorically in their backyard, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I, I question whether that should be happening. And, and you know, like, I, I know a lot of people are very excited about it. But, you know, um, you know, once you turn around and put X number of windmills on the Port of Port Peninsula, I mean, they're, they're going to be 600 feet plus in height. And uh, uh, it's a moose management area, Area 43. Uh, you know, what's going to happen to wildlife out there? There's all kinds of questions that, that have not been answered. And, uh, you know, I, and what bothers me, I think, too, about this project is I know a lot of people are excited, but I've seen some social media comments as of late, you know, uh, people making comments like, well, you know, they had a rally last week and it's sort of like, well, you know, uh, we're going to be taking note of the people who do support this business uh, or business people who do support it. And like, it's almost like saying, if you don't support it, or if you've got concerns, we're not going to patronize your business. And, you know, that's a form of intimidation, you know, and I, I, I think, you know, it, it, this, this whole debate needs to be a little bit more respectful. And, and I know a lot of people are very excited about it, but, you know, the people of the Port of Port Peninsula, I worked with a, a former now defunct uh, uh, Rural Development Association for many years out there. And I know the people on the Port of Port Peninsula, and uh, I've made some lifelong friends there. And I just, I just really, really believe that their voices need to be heard a little bit louder. And that's the only reason why I'm, I'm calling in today, you know, uh, 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 on behalf of the, uh, you know, the people out there that are, uh, I'm, not, I'm not here to speak on behalf of them, but I'm saying, you know, like some of these people I've known all my life, and they're very afraid their way of life is going to be destroyed, you know. So I just wanted to put that plug in today. And, uh, like, I'm not against the project personally. I, I don't have a, 
you know, Patty, I don't have a, a horse in this race, shall we say. So I really don't have a, 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 I don't have a stake in it either way. Uh, but I will say that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the first principle of community economic development, if people don't want it in that area, maybe it's a rethink. You know, there's lots of other places they can put it on the West Coast or the Basin Georgia area. That's all I've got to say about it anyway. I appreciate you making time for the show, Patrick. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. That's Tony Wakeham, and, of course, he's leader of the party. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, before I get into the issues around the homeless and issues, just listen to your caller about the uh, the windmill project uh, that's taking place in my district, that impacts my district. And uh, you're right, there are people that are certainly opposed to it, and there are people who are totally in favor of this project. But what it comes down to, this particular district of mine has one of the highest unemployment rates per capita in the entire province and one of the lowest per capita incomes rates in the entire province. And so we need economic development. But when we say we need economic development, it's about making sure that economic development is done right. So it's not about, we shouldn't be simply talking about whether we oppose or whether we support. What we need to be doing, the government needs to be doing, is doing their due diligence. Because every single opportunity we have, whether it's in salt mines, whether it's in gold mines, whether it's in windmills, we have an opportunity here to have economic development in our province. And we need to do everything we can to make sure that we open those doors. But government has a responsibility to do their due diligence and to make sure when these projects are, are proposed in an area that they do address the concerns of the residents. And we try and minimize the impacts on people and the environment. We will never eliminate all the risks, but it's how we manage the risk that's important. And the other side of that is making sure that we are the beneficiaries of these projects, that we maximize those benefits. And that includes not only to the province, of course, but to the communities on where these projects are located, including not just during construction, but ongoing benefits. So I think it's time, you know, let's time to take the politics out of this and start focusing on let government do your due diligence and let's communicate with the people in my district and let them know what you're doing and let's make sure that we do it right. Well, but how do you uh, assess how the government is handling it? Well, again, it's the government, we had the big announcements or, you know, a lot of politicians wrote with the German chancellor were here. But there's been a lot of a lack of communication, in my opinion, from the government in terms of letting people know how far along they are in the process, what they've actually looked at, what they've done. You know, there's been lots of the company has done a lot of job in communicating and trying to communicate. But the government seems to be falling behind on the whole communication piece, because I think there's a, an opportunity that the government has to do their due diligence and reassure the people, whether it's about what, what steps you've taken, what, what's going to be in place when the project starts, what measures you have in place to protect the land after a project ends. There's all kinds of things that go into this. And that's why it's so important that we get this done and get it done, uh, get it done and uh, get it done right. Fair enough. A quick comment on the housing task force, uh, Tony. Yeah, exactly. Patty, how 
did the government turn around hastily call a task force announcement after uh, uh, because of the snowstorm i mean if this was such a great idea why wasn't it three months ago but the bigger issue for me is these people that are in tent city are representative of what's happening in the entire province we've seen the stories from maine larbador we've seen the stories from cornerbrook you know the government has failed to have a strategy to do with affordable housing and that's been the root of this problem they've announced that they had uh, units built that they didn't even have built and when they announced the, the budget that they were going to build 850 new units why didn't they announce that they were going to be repairing some of the units they already had in existence maybe people could be moving into those now that's some of the challenges we have here and again you know the government's reaction is let's set up a task force what's the task force going to do is it looking at provincial issues or is it simply looking at the issues that are currently happening in st john's and when you see a minister of transportation almost in a in a match with with the with the city of st john's about who should provide portable toilets really is that what this has come to i mean surely and then to talk about the lack of communication or the miscommunication that's why we need to set up a task force i mean there was enough government departments yet the minister of housing the minister of transportation and all the other ones they should be able to get together and they should have figured out a solution short term and long term but that's where they failed and they failed the entire province the Liberal government has not delivered a housing strategy over the last eight years, and now we find ourselves in another crisis that they're trying to manage by putting up and making announcements. I'd like to know a little bit more, let's say we'll call it the terms of reference, for lack of a better phrase, exactly what the short-term considerations are, exactly what the long-term considerations are for an actual plan as opposed to, you know, here's how much money we're going to put forward to try to build homes because that doesn't address the lag time for permitting. It doesn't address uh, speeding up zoning-related matters. It doesn't give us a real precise idea if we're talking about single-family dwellings or uh, population density, you know, some of those things. The provincial announcement on housing was pretty good when we're talking about hitting an affordable target because the rents will be put forward by the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation versus some of the federal monies, which is, you know, it doesn't matter who builds a home. If you're building a single-family dwelling at a couple hundred bucks per square feet, there's no change, regardless if it's a community group or a private developer, it's do we hit the affordability target on the end. I think the provincial announcement is pretty sound, but the federal monies are a bit willy-nilly about how we're going to actually hit targets here. So anyway, final thoughts, Tony, before I take the last break of the day of the day and the week. Again, Patty, it comes down to strategy and having a plan. When I look around and we hear the stories about housing units actually having to be torn down, torn down in Cornerbrook, torn down in Gander, these are units that maybe if we had to have a strategy over the last eight years, they could have been repaired instead of having to be torn down. That's the frustration is, is when you have units that are in disrepair, why haven't they been actioned? Why haven't we repaired them? And as we move forward, you're absolutely right. In the short term now, we need to go down there and we need to be talking to those people individually down in Tent City and find solutions for them in the short term. But long term, we need a bigger strategy. We need that strategy. We need it for not only affordable housing, but also for people who are faced with cost of living that are wondering if they can afford to stay even in their own homes. When we look at the number of seniors, one third of seniors saying that they have uh, or can't afford to live. There's lots of issues that need to be addressed, and they're not getting addressed by this liberal government. I appreciate the time, Tony. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. It's Tony Wakem, the PC member of uh, Stephenville Port of Port and, of course, leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. Let's go to four. April, you're on the air. Hi, April. Oh, hi, Patty. Thanks so much for having me today. Happy to do it. What's on your mind? 
I wanted to let your listeners know about two wonderful craft fairs, Christmas craft fairs that are happening this weekend. And in this time where people want to shop local, they don't always know what's happening in their own communities. So tomorrow, Cowan Heights United Church is having their sixth annual Christmas craft fair. And that runs from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. There are going to be lots of homemade gifts and treasures from local artisans and exhibitors. They're actually having a lunch special, too. And children under 12 get in free. So it's going to be a fun time. And on Sunday, out in Kellegrews, the Kiwanis Club of Kellegrews is having uh, a market. They're going to have free face painting, 50-50 draw. And they're accepting donations to the food bank, too, if people want to bring any, any donations in. Hopefully people will get out for a bit of thwacking uh, tomorrow. That includes the two events you just told us about. I'd hate to rush through it, April, but I'm almost out of time. Would you like to tell us anything else or spread any uh, further message here this morning? Well, I'm going to be at both of them with my children's books. My most recent children's book actually hit number 35 on Amazon's Top 100 for Exploring Canada for Children. I even had uh, one of your regulars, you said he was a regular of yours, uh, come out to Cape Royal a couple weeks ago, and he purchased all three of them. So shout out to Robert. Thank you so much. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, keep up the good work with the books. I, now I know who you are. I didn't see your last name on my subject line, but good to have you on. Good luck with the events this weekend, April. Thank you so much. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. we get back uh, here right after this. Rob wants to talk about the snowstorm, and Harvard wants to tell us about an upcoming parade. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Rob, you're on the air. Happy Friday, Patty. Thank you. The same to you. Yes, and I just want to talk about that snow not happening. Um, you know, it's been going on for years, but these weather people, they're sitting in boxes, looking at computers, looking at... Uh, visuals on a computer screen and everything like that why don't they just uh, put windows in the place and take a look out the window and see what's going on yeah but you can't look out the window see what's going to happen at six o'clock right that's the trick there if a, if the forecast was as simple as well here's what's happening right this minute then it removes any opportunity for preparations or plans or decisions to close schools or early dismissals or what have you so i suppose the you know this uh, put your finger in your mouth put it up see which way the wind's blowing that's fair enough but i think you really do have a complicated world of weather forecasting i'm glad it's not my job this job's bad oh. enough oh yes no absolutely that's the only job that you can be wrong all the time and still have one but um uh, you know, but as, as you get up in the day and as the day's going on, well, it's not so bad out. It's, you know, a bit of rain. It's not freezing yet or anything like that. Like, just open the windows and take a look out. Like, government closed down. Um, they got a few windows on, on around their uh, place. Um, somebody could have just said, well, it's not so bad yet. We don't need to shut her down. Yeah, well, I, I think there was a lot of premature closures, obviously. So even when the forecast, if it had to be hit right on the nail, there was still going to be questionable decisions for places to be closed all day. I mean, there wasn't even the forecast for the rain to start until sometime early afternoon. So I just don't know how people, you know, hear the forecast, read the news, include the warnings, make decisions. But again, it's an imperfect science. And there's a, a task I would not want to then that's be the meteorologist in this province. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I hear you there, buddy. So I know you got uh, a busy last few minutes there. So you have yourself a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Rob. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's see. A bit of Christmas cheer. Let's do it. Line number six. Good morning, Howard. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. I'm calling from the Kids Club of uh, Woodless Bay, Patty. We've been at a Santa Claus parade now for, I think, 43 years. Terrific. 
And our aim this year was to try to get back to what it used to be. <laughs> Don't we do that with just about everything, I suppose. But um, it, it seems uh, like last year, the tail end of the pandemic and big hockey tournaments around handy just took away some people from it. So our parade was a little bit less than we were used to. So we've sent out a lot of flyers this year, and we've put out some information, signs up all over the place, put it on our website and everything. But I just wanted your listeners to know that the parade, the annual Santa Claus parade from the Kingsman starts, same as it always did, Dean's Road and Harbour Road. Tomorrow morning, we're planning on moving about 10.30, so anyone who wants to uh, pop around and have a look uh, from 10 o'clock on, they will see the parade, they will see what's happening. And there's things about our parade, I just wanted people to know, it's mostly what I'm calling. We have, uh, when the parade ends up at St. Bernard School in Middles Bay, we have free hot dogs, free coffee, free juice and drinks for the kids. And uh, it, it's all free. You just go in, grab a hot dog and juice for the kids and so on like that. Plus, we try to recover some of the cost of the parade by having a raffle. We've got a, a bunch of this, it's hard for me to say, the squish mellows, squash mellows. Okay. The thing, <laughs> the thing that the children uh, seem to go crazy about. We've got turkeys, we've got buckets of beef, we've got buckets of riblets, and we've got uh, Paw Patrols, there's another toy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pretty, pretty nice parade. We've also got a small 50-50. We just tried to recover part of the cost of the parade. Between buying stuff, we've got uh, 240 loot bags just to pass out. When the kids get up and get on uh, Santa's knee, he's going to give them a loot bag with a candy cane and a few little goodies in it. And most parades don't have that, you know. I'd like to just brag that we're one of the few that would have all of that and anyone in any area anywhere now welcome to come along grab a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or a hot dog and and enjoy the day and bring some uh, some cash for the for the goods for you because that's pretty well all we can accept in the area like that you know it sounds like a great plan and a great event I appreciate the time Howard good luck with the 43rd edition of the uh, Whitless Bay Kinsman Santa Claus Parade Okay, and thank you for your time, Pat. You're welcome, sir. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, good show today. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.